wanted to um, say thanks for what you said at the funeral. It was, uh, my friends would have appreciated. Yeah, well, you don't want to know me, lady. I'm a murderer and rapist of women. faith here. Enough even for you. I thought women weren't allowed. Well, we've never had any before. But we tolerate anybody. Even the intolerable. Thank you. That's just a statement of principle, nothing personal. You see, we've, we've got a good place to wait here. And until now, no temptation. safe assumption you didn't read any of the aliens magazines they were coming out oh no nope no i did not is there a particular reason why that was like did they even stock at the shops you went to in that time period i don't think so i saw aliens you know comic book product but not the alien magazine and i that wasn't even a thing that was on my radar until this show i mean if i did they didn't register and and, you know i was i've looked through magazine boxes and i've never seen an aliens magazine and gone oh man maybe i should check this out i just just didn't know it's a thing don't know if i was around when the magazine started like we talked a little bit before we started recording about being introduced to the previous catalog and pull boxes and concepts like that mm-hmm. and i'm pretty sure i was already getting catalog service but when those magazines were being solicited and i because I, I vaguely recall like a sense of guilt because you know here's an op- another opportunity for me to start buying aliens comics and obviously i have enough of an enduring love for this property that i'm starting a podcast <laughs> this late in the game for the you know and buying the omnibuses and such so uh, the pool was there but again, having read enough of the Dark Horse comics by this point to know that I wasn't necessarily being grabbed by the, the the property within this medium. Like some things work in film and don't work in prose and don't work in video games or whatever. Just right. because you got something that works in one place doesn't necessarily mean it works for another. And it's, uh, by the same token, I didn't think that the Dark Horse stuff was terrible. I thought most of it was at least okay. I certainly hated a lot more stuff that was being produced in that time period than I did the Aliens books. But I think it was a combination of, it was an import because because they, they made that for the British market, and I'm pretty sure there was some kind of a significant markup for this anthology. It was an anthology too, which at least the subject matter is something I would like to see in multiple incarnations of, but I'm not a huge fan of them serializing stories, and especially knowing that they were reprints of the Dark Horse miniseries, so they're going to have these unnatural breakpoints and such. A lot of strikes against mm. it, uh, but also I think the main thing was that it was Dark Horse magazine, and of course this is a British style magazine, which means that it's really thin and tall, so it's almost like a baby version of one of the, the big tabloids or 
Treasury Edition. And you know, yeah. as a comic book fan, what a pain those are to store, to preserve. They didn't really have bags for those necessarily. Uh, I didn't have the boxes for that time period, especially when they were first coming out. I don't even know if I had long boxes. I think I was still putting my stuff in like wooden trunks and such. Um, so it just <laughs> logistically, it seemed like a nightmare to me. So I, I, I've, yeah. to my recollection, never bought a single issue of the Aliens magazine. I have seen them in the wild. I have seen them on the stands in the past. I did occasionally pick up one of those British books just out of curiosity, but they've always been a nightmare for me. Like I, I'm a big fan of martial law and they Apocalypse put out at least one or two magazine format books and they were too tall. So even in my magazine boxes, they're about the first, uh, the top inch is crimped because there was always something on top of that box that would crush uh. an upper portion that was not protected because I didn't have a bag and board that would fit it. You know, I didn't have a box that would hold it. it it's just, again, I, I don't, I know there are some people that like fetishize formats and oh I want the really small version oh I want the really big versions like I'm definitely one of those basic people just give me a comic book <laughs> give me comic book dimensions don't deviate yeah. significantly from the comic book dimensions and if you are going to do it make sure it's like people magazine size make it something where there's a, you know a, a, an upgrade I don't need six pockets for your oversized trading cards as referencing the previous episode <laughs> how are you with anthologies too because I know there's a lot of people that just inherently disdain that format do you like anthologies at all i i liked them until i was a retailer and it was one of the first things my my boss told me was anthologies tank 100 percent of the time no one is interested in the whole thing they're interested in pieces of it at different levels and it's never enough to make the sale and i was like that's crazy you know you know how could it how could that be and then in my experience it ended up being true i like them again now and i don't know if it's because i'm old I, you know i but i do like especially if it's not uh i mean like a stapled monthly anthology like a marvel comics presents would still be cool but i'd like to get you know like a big a hefty anthology that's something that i think is uh it's really appealing now for some reason i don't know what happened to me in between except for the retailing thing but oh i actually think being old i think that's a huge part of it because I, with anthologies I, I tried anthologies they because they kept trying to bring that format back is one of those things like the pulp heroes where the, their time had clearly passed and yet every 10 years somebody's trying to bring back Doc Savage or The Shadow, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah, the same thing with yeah. anthologies. And Marvel figured it out for a long time there. Marvel Comics Presents actually sold really well. And and it's in part because while you did have a Wolverine ongoing, there was enough hunger for Wolverine at that time period to where putting him in a second book was going to be enough on its own. But then they would also throw Ghost Rider and Cable and Venom and all these other characters in there. And it's like and most of them who didn't have their own books or only had a single book. And there was demand for something extra. And you had them all in the same book. It's like, oh yeah, I want a book where one of the covers has Ghost Rider by Sam Keith and the other has Wolverine by Sam Keith. Kick butt, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that's one of those. Another one, I don't know why, maybe just low print runs, but that series gets pretty uh, expensive at the end, even though it's not always Ghost Rider and Wolverine at the, at the end. It's like Lunatic and Typhoid Mary. And mm -hmm. you're like, how the hell? How are they doing and, this? And I, I'm sure part of it is the print runs because there's a lot of people of a certain age that can now afford to buy a 150, 170 comic book run or more than likely have bought the first 80, 90, 100 issues. Like, well, why don't I get the other 25? Oh, because the print runs plummeted when the market collapsed. And where, where there used to be, you know, 150,000 copies of this comic book, these last issues, there's 20,000. And, you know, there's 20,000 guys who want it, you know, and have the right. money to pay exorbitant fees for it. Uh, I'm sure that's a big part of it. Um, but like you said, though, even, even Marvel Comics Presents couldn't keep up because especially in the 90s when Wolverine was in everything, when Ghost Rider was in everything, they killed the demand for a book like Marvel Comics Presents. And let's face it, while they did have some 
some good stuff in there. They had some solid serialization and, and some really good artists. Um, it was a good place for them to develop talent and have it work where like by comparison, Action Comics Weekly was a place where they sent people like the retirement home. You know, it was it was the, where all the wash ups went and, and, the, and but not just the uh, talent, but even the characters like, you know, you got really got Dan Spiegel on Secret Six and you think this is going to sell at double the cost of a normal comic book and double the link. Um, Marvel, Marvel definitely had the formula down and obviously Dark Horse Presents did a very good job as well because uh, for a long time they kept throwing um, Terminator and Aliens and Predator and all these different licenses at it um, and I think also toward the end they sort of merged it with Cheval Noir so you did have some of that premium foreign reprint material in there as well or you, you just had a little bit more of a cachet uh, but even Dark Horse finally gave up the ghost and that was their flagship book forever um, and it's kind of a shame because I do think there are a lot of guys like us out there that are kind of like in, in like the last 10 years or so I just almost any anthology that comes out I go ahead and buy it uh, I heavy metal being an exception because it had been around for so long and it was kind of cost prohibitive um, but they just they're about to relaunch that and I'm going to start picking it up because I love a little short story or a serialized story I can you know let's be honest it's a good bathroom reader you know right. um, yeah. but also it's it's there's so many projects like again I'm, I've got a book that weighs like 5-10 pounds on my desk right now full of you know mini series devoted to aliens and you know yeah it's great that I'm reading four and six issue miniseries but it'd be even better if I was reading eight to ten page stories and could just take them in bite-sized chunks um, and I can do that with some of these other anthologies uh, Image right now is for their 30th anniversary has an anthology out and it's not like I don't think it's going to win any Eisners or anything but I am in- enjoying it and you know I just I, I it used to be I needed to read stories that counted if it wasn't part of the continuity it wasn't advancing this greater narrative then what was the point of their existence and now nice. it's like I, the point is can, can you give me something that makes me happy for five minutes instead of being on my phone or something you know yeah yeah i think uh i was thinking about that a little bit when you were talking about the other alien stories salvation and this one are both one shots and i was thinking about you know even when it's not a good one shot it's still it's almost like max uh movie theory where he's like how long is this movie you know an hour and a half hour and 20 minutes who cares you know it's not 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 a who cares but if it a shorter alien story that's okay lower investment lower expectations yeah i'm okay i'm I'm okay with it if it was 12 issues i might be less okay with it you know that's going to come up later i I assure you Because it's funny because you do mention this is a one shot, except it isn't a one shot. This was actually a serialized story. It's published in four issues of Aliens UK magazine, 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, dated March through June of 1993. And so this is four installments collected into one book. But what was weird about it is that it it was, of course, made for the UK market. It debuted in the UK with UK talent. And I think that it was commissioned by Dark Horse International, which was apparently a separate entity from Dark Horse America. Right. Um, And yet Dark Horse then solicited and published the one shot collection of the serial in the United States before the full four issues had appeared in the UK. So it debuts in the UK. It's completed in the US. And then it's, you know, you you have this vestigial ending in the serialized format in the UK. Dang. Yeah. That would probably upset me if I was in the UK. And having read it, did you feel those chapter breaks at all? I didn't. You know, it wasn't like, oh, what's happening here? You know, but now that you said that, I'm 
the first thing I did was start trying to wind back tape and see if I could figure out where they are. There were a few points there where there were reiterations where like like a very subtle, well done recaps of material from the previous chapter in dialogue between the characters. But because it's it's it, they're ruminating anyway, it's just very organic. And so when you're looking for the rank points as I was, I could see it, but it flows well enough to where you, you really it, it, it's it's fair to read it either way. And in fact, I think it probably reads better as a collected volume than it did as serialized anyway. But they do give you some helpers if you're reading it with a gap between it. I, th- I want to say the magazine, no, okay, I guess it was monthly. I thought maybe it was bi-weekly, but I think there might have also been a period where the U.S. market was catching up with the U.K. market. So I'm not sure that worked. But based on the, the dates that I've seen here on Xenopedia, they would have been a month apart between installments. Okay. Was it where the alien appears to her in her dream? That seems like it might be a good cliffhanger. Mm-hmm. I'd like have to sit beginning. there and actually do the count. We, I don't want to go that deep into it. But right. I, they, but right. I did, as I was reading it, knowing that there were break points, it's like, okay, I could see where this one was. And I think I might check the numbers en route, but I'm not going to go back. Gotcha. So you only just read, and actually both of us, I think within the last week or so, we both read the story for the first time. Yes? Yes. Yeah. And of course, I, I'm assuming because you, like, I, I, I didn't know if we were just going to do Salvation and that was it for at least the short term. Um, But you, you kind of leapt on to Sacrifice and then was like, hey, wait a second, I think I can talk about Sacrifice too. Was that because it was collected into one trade paperback with Salvation and you're wondering thematically if they belong together essentially? Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I uh, After doing the Salvation thing, I was like, you know, I knew there's going to be more Aliens shows and I know there's more Aliens comics out there. So I'm like, well, Sacrifice was at one point published with Salvation. So that was sold to an audience as a package, right? So I what's in that second half of the package that I'm not privy to, you know, because I just have the Mignola book and it was <laughs> the first... I took some notes after finishing this the first time and they're all just expletives. I, it was, it's almost, I like it more now than I did when I first read it, but I don't like it as much as Salvation. It's almost like the bizarro version of Salvation, you know? It's kind it's, of deep impact, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's yes. like the, you can see that these definitely belong together. They belong in the same collection. There's a lot of thematic resonance where they kind of bounce back off one another, but also you've clearly chosen your horse decades before you read the story. And also yep. having just read Salvation, you can't help but directly compare it to Sacrifice, a comic that you think is one of the best comics ever made versus this other comic book. It's it's not really fair, is it? <laughs> it it's, it's not fair. And I, like I said, I, I thought about it for probably longer than I should have. And I, I landed in a place where I do like it, but I was, I was struggling there for a little while. And it wasn't that it was bad. It's just that I didn't, especially when you juxtapose it with Salvation, it's almost, it is like the, the negative image, you know, because Salvation is kind of of like for me whether or not the guy is right or wrong with his beliefs he ends up doing the right thing you know potentially you know mankind is saved this planet is saved you know it's it's got a it's a bummer but it's ultimately in the big picture it's a happy ending right well unless, is, unless you're one of the monkeys in that jungle that gets nuked from me <laughs> oh yeah those monkeys yeah they uh they didn't stand a chance <laughs> they were they're, they're all done but uh, <laughs> this thing it's like the you know salvation is a bummer that's really i think it's ultimately a positive ending I don't know if like this one is like it's a positive ending, but it's really a bummer or I don't I don't know. I, I it just I, it seems like it's all like a 
the dark, like a bizarro is the only thing I can think of to say about it. I, I think even in the context of being collected with Salvation, which again has been considered one of the greatest alien stories ever and, you know, promoted on places recently like Comic Book Kayfabe, but also it's a Mike Mignola work. And it's funny because it used to be there was probably a good section of the reading public that missed me with that. You know, they just would completely dismiss anything by Mike Mignola. There was a time where this was a guy who's probably pretty controversial, where now, especially with an aging readership who are a little bit more open-minded, Mignola is like one of the crown jewels of comics, you know? He's like mm. our, our Alex Toth or whatever, right? So now, of course, people are, are wanting to buy a hardcover collection of this story, where back in the day, they probably had trouble with getting enough people to buy it as a, you know, prestige format, square-bound, you know, right? Mm. Um, yeah. So, of course, they have collected that numerous times, and one time they did collect it with this story, but given, you know, the, the, the sales in modern years and stuff, I'm, I'm certain there's a lot of people that have never read Sacrifice, right? I mean, yeah, again, I mean, it's, it's a one-shot at a time when people maybe wouldn't want to pay the extra price for it. It's a UK serialized story, you know, like 10 years or so ago was when it was collected with Salvation. So I'm sure this has been missed many a time. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who maybe meant to read it and never got around to it. So I'm sure there's less familiarity. So do you want to tell folks roughly the, the story? What happens in this particular edition? Oh, okay. Well, on the at a high enough level, it's kind of the straightforward thing like Salvation, right? There's a, a ship that crashes. There's an alien encounter. There's a, a struggle to come to terms with, you know, the aliens being there, the aliens presence and the, you know, salvation ends up the guy I said it was a, he nukes the planet, but you somehow feel good about it. Uh, in this one, it's, they, it's the opposite. They don't nuke the planet and you, you, you don't feel good about it. They address the alien problem, but it's in a, the way, uh, the way they do it is not as a big a deal as blowing up a whole planet, but it bothers you more. It, it you blows know, it up somebody's entire worldview. <laughs> yes. It, it, so it's a much smaller, but emotionally more devastating a, a turn of event. Right. Yeah. It's a, in the way that um, the protagonist in Salvation kind of finds his strength in his faith and uses that to move forward. This is a story where uh, Anne is the protagonist. She ends up, she's struggling with her faith. And I think her mental health or mental well-being in general. And she seems like she gets back on her feet with her mental health at the end, but without her faith. And it's, you know, it's, she's probably in a better place, you know? So you're like, oh, this is, this is a happy ending, but it doesn't feel like a happy ending. So spoiler, I guess I skipped to the end. Yeah. So the publisher's summary, I assume this was from the one shot edition. I might dig around and see if I can find the copy from the individual magazines. Stranded on an isolated planet, Anne McKay takes shelter in a remote village that is being terrorized by an alien. She soon discovers that its inhabitants are hiding a horrifying secret from her. But to discover the truth, she has to face her own innermost demons and try to save the souls of the villagers at the same time. And uh, this is a fairly complex story. It's actually, I would argue, a much more complex narrative than Salvation. Way Uh, more complex. Yeah. Yeah. I I think there's a lot less, ultimately, there's less layers to the story. I think that ultimately the story is fairly straightforward. You know, it's, it's, it's a drama. And it's a drama, again, about faith much like the first one was, but I, I don't think there's layers to this particular onion. I think that it's a well-crafted, much more straightforward story, right? And it's yes. to some degree the same story, and yet a, a, such a different presentation and with such a different perspective that you can definitely, you know, they're, they're definitely mirroring each other. And I, and I in no way believe that that was intentional. I personally, because I'm sitting here, this we're doing an anthology. And uh, normally with these, the, the previous two is I would bring in multiple guests. And I don't think it works for this particular edition in part because the subject matter is so similar to one each other 
they're across multiple stories that I think that we need to have a dialogue about those similarities and it doesn't make sense to you know, you know cycle through a bunch of different people also I don't want to subject a bunch of people to crusade so we'll get to that <laughs> one later on um, so instead this is a, a collection of stories that all resemble one another for various reasons but I think the main reason I talked in the last episode about how oh you want to come out the aliens room perspective then you should come at them for a more metaphysical spiritual theological perspective they're mm-hmm. demons in, the, in a, in a sci-fi hell kind of situation let's do like an event horizon kind of thing with them where is it alien race or is it something beyond something as simple as sci-fi horror monster that is just like a creature we're not familiar with the the unknown it's like no this is a thing that we're kind of know about because it's in our scriptures um right. and, and i think the reason why they're playing with this is because so many people and certainly people who would be interested in writing alien stories in this time period were probably following the development of alien 3 and they're probably reading about wooden planets with monks and ultimately alien 3 does come out and we do have those quasi monks they're also prisoners but the point is it's it's very much grounding the aliens lore in theology within that movie and knowing that that development was occurring there are probably a lot of guys who are thinking well what would i do with that circumstance having heard what they're doing and kind of spinning off from that and the result is a bunch of stories that are soaking in specifically christian dogma and we talked a lot about that in the previous episode like good and bad about you know uh, theology and particularly catholicism and really specifically catholicism impacts on all three of these stories as well increasingly so in fact to be honest with you um Mm -hmm. because in the first story we've just got a guy who's religious who just but otherwise what was he the cook or something on the or yeah swabbing the decks or something he's just a religious guy who has this extraordinary circumstance and it really causes him to to double and triple down on his religiosity because he's being confronted by what he perceives as literal physical demons right Mm -hmm. whereas this story we we have a situation a a character who's not really dissimilar from Ripley in terms of just like basic personality Um, she is a person who's like dogged and determined and uh, um, puts her own life on the line for the greater good and is very heroic and self-sacrificing they even both have the short hair you know compared to aliens versus uh, not, not as short as alien threes but you know very practical hair for a lady right and uh so and, and again like in alien three you have this heroine character crash land on this planet and uh the religion becomes a big part of the particular story but in this case she's the one bringing the religion because having crash landed and then knowing that or having encountered an alien which is one thing that kind of throws you off partly because i've read a bunch of alien stories in the last couple of years and partly because i just read salvation where we know that the aliens were the cause of the crash your natural assumption is that they're also the cra- the cause of the crash of this lady's ship but exactly. they're not are they no and that's again you know everything in this is a zig where you think it's going to be a zag you know it opens with the, the you know the ship crashing or you know her flashback to the ship crashing and you're like oh well the aliens must be you know messing with the ship and it's not you know and it's just her and it's <laughs> that was actually my, one of my first questions i wrote down and when i was starting to read this i was like is this is this the ship at the end of salvation somehow i don't think it is but how you know how is it that this ship with this religious character on it is just crashing here and what you know i, I felt like my first impression that i was missing something and then my second impression was is she has had she flashes back to previous experience with an alien i was like this must be referencing earth war you know they have a line in there where she says like back when we used to be afraid of ghosts and you know before we had 
had aliens to worry about. And I was like, oh, this must be, aliens must be loose on the whole earth. You know, and I started to feel okay with my footing in the context of this book, mostly based on this podcast <laughs> and, and like hearing what happened. But, you know, I, it, I realized it wasn't a direct salvation continuity sequel. It wasn't like to be continued in sacrifice type thing. Also, you mentioned her being a spiritual person, but that's really not an evidence early on. I don't think she's like praying to God or anything. And if she is, I, it's more like, oh God, oh God, oh God, don't get me, you know? Um, I think that going into this, knowing that there's a religious element to it because it's being collected with another book with a religious element and it has a title like Sacrifice, we're ex- we're, we're expecting something and it's not necessarily an evidence initially. Yeah, and they, they again, they, uh, they zig initially because she's talking about the ship crashing and what a disaster it is. And she says something to the effect of, I tried to uh, bring myself to pray, but I couldn't do it, you know? And it's so immediately she's in contrast with uh, the, the guy in Salvation because he's stopping to pray the whole time. You know, he's got aliens chasing him down. He's like, well, I better stop and pray here real quick. <laughs> like, oh, I'm going to go into this ship full of aliens. I better stop and pray. You know, he's praying the whole time. And she's like, yeah, I couldn't even do it. So when she turns out, you know, to be uh, clergy, it's a lot, it's one of the biggest shocks in the book. And there are several, but <laughs> that was a big one for me. Well, and especially because they set up, she, she escapes from the, the lone alien. And again, because we just read Salvation, we're like, oh no, there's all these aliens. There is an alien, you know, just the mm-hmm. one. And she's encountering this one after having crashed, which admittedly is, is pretty astronomically unlikely, but th- that's the one major conceit of the story you're going to have to allow for it. And so having run into this alien after having crashed landed in a crash that's got nothing to do with aliens, she runs to shelter. She manages to find a shelter, part of the second big ask of the story, but let's go with it. Maybe there was a trail, right? And so she yeah, finds... Yeah, I think she said she saw it from the ship. Yeah. There's a line of dialogue, but... There you go. Uh, so she makes her way to a shelter, and, and the shelter seems to be predominantly men and not the best of guys. A lot of drinkers, a lot of harsh people who who obviously treat her with suspicion and disdain because they're hoping for colonial marines. They're waiting to get rescued. They see a ship in the sky. They're hoping at least one guy with a gun is showing up. There is no guy with a gun. There's a lady right. screaming and, and half mad and passes <laughs> out for a day after she shows up, you know? So not what they ordered, right? And of right. course, one of the guys who is a heavy drinker but is compared to some of the more rough guys around him seems like he's all right. He's hitting on her. And whoops, I forgot to mention, I'm a priest. And you know, yep. this is 1993. Uh, I, were there any, like, I, I know that was a thing that eventually happened was there was some flexibility with female priests, but I, I think in 93, that was still pretty much verboten internationally, right? Was there maybe like oh, one or two in San Francisco or something? Been, like the, well, I mean, the Catholics are still, I don't think you can do it, but I think the Episcopalians or the Anglicans are a little bit more uh, reasonable about all that uh, who can be clergy based on their gender. I know I know 100% that the Episcopalians do it today and they did it 20 years ago, but I don't know, maybe in 93? Not the Catholics, though. Well, that and I, I, the indication for me, because I do think there's a little bit of a Joan of Arcness a little bit. Uh, a lot, I, I, I think, a yeah. lot. Okay, we're same page then, but you're you're a lot more familiar with that than I am. That it, it skews more Catholic, you know? It's, yeah. it, it, so it's probably not any sort of Protestant division. This is like, I am a priest. I have like a superhero-sized cross on my chest that I've been concealing this entire time. I am yeah. the priest. So quite jarring. And, I, I, that, and again, that's one of those, oh, this had to be the chapter break, right? You know, I, I didn't check the numbers, but really it had to be, right? Yeah, it seems like it. That was, I mean, it's probably not, you could go back and map all these every time you drop a book and said, what in God's name? It was probably a, a chapter break. Yeah. And then of course, we're dealing with the repercussions of that. And in particular, it's funny because the, the guy who's hitting on her is 
like, hey, I'm still not giving up now. You know, you're essentially right. a nun, but I still think I'm going to get some if I just try hard enough. You're going to be here a while anyway. We'll see how it goes. Uh, and and she, while initially seeming to not have any interest in, in, in a relatively short span of time, that seems to turn a little bit. Because um, again, she's only here for a few days in this story. So it's not like she's had months and months of this stuff. It's like, you know, within a week span of time, she's like questioning her vows. You'd think that Elvis Presley had shown up and she's Mary Tyler Moore, you know? Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, you know, especially because in the, in the front, uh, in the first two pages, uh, she seems to be struggling. Like the, uh, the first line of dialogue is the devil bites me and I wake up in hell. And then she's met references, not being able to pray. Like I couldn't physically bring myself to do it. She says on page two. So you know that she's already, she's on the rocks type of thing when she, when she crashes there. But, uh, one of the things I made a note about those, when she crashes, there's a, uh, unmentioned, unplausible circumstance that maybe it would be better if we circle back to it at the end. But when she's stumbling through the jungle and finds those stones and she alludes to, uh, seeing some like them in Scotland, I Googled that cause I didn't know what she was talking about. And there's these stones and I can't read my own writing about what they're called, but the mythology of the stones is that they're petrified giants that refuse to be baptized or refuse to become Christian. And that's why these stones are standing there in the middle of Scotland. And I think that that kind of, you know, thematically rolls up to the whole thing because she's, you know, at this crisis point and she is just running through the woods after this crash and she comes across this thing right before she first encounters this alien on the planet and nothing happened. I mean, it's pretty cleverly depicted. It does all the things you want it to with the alien because he's, you know, mostly in shadow. You can't really, uh, Paul Johnson does a really good job of kind of making it clear enough that you can see that it's there, but holding back enough so it's still scary. You know, it still has that vibe. And then she runs off and stumbles into the uh, the encampment or whatever it is, the little little kind of walking dead village they have there hiding from the, all these guys behind this big wall hiding from the alien. Yeah, and sometimes just I'm just a big old dummy because that's so Chekhov's pedestal, tombstone, whatever you want to call it. And yeah. for me, it's just like, okay, well, I, for some reason, I'm just not consciously going, oh, that's going to be something later on. It just like, uh, I just let it walk right past me. And I'm like, when it comes back around again, I'm like, doy, of course this is going to come back. What was I thinking? Why didn't I catch that the first time? The, yeah, that's well, just that's one of those instances where I'm just like, oh, you, you, you're definitely still a boob. You know, I may try to do like these deep analysis of these stories, but sometimes something that blatant is like, I just let it walk right, wash right over me. You know, I did have the advantage of having the, uh, the 1993 edition and it is on the cover. So I, it was a uh, double telegraph to me. So I, I was keeping an eye out for it type of thing. But yeah. And see, that's the, the thing with that too, is I, that again, was not a book I saw as often. I think I saw it on the shelf when it first came out, but it never, it didn't stick with me the way that uh, Mike Mignola's imagery did. And oh, yeah, so no. my brain always kind of read that as she's a gardener and she's got like a hoe or something, you know, it's like, it, it, <laughs> yeah. it, it, I never put together, you know, what she's walking past her and that stuff. Probably because to a large degree, I've probably seen it in thumbnail on, on websites while doing research rather than actually having the physical comic book in my hands. And I'm not even sure I got to flip back in the omnibus right quick because what they tend to do is they collect the covers at the back of the book for the most part. They'll usually mm-hmm. have a front piece. Okay, it is here. So I'm just obtuse. So yeah, it, it, the cover is at the beginning of the story in the omnibus. Yeah, I, I just, I'm dumb, dumb. I, I, oh. I are not smart sometimes. <laughs> 
we'll give you a pass. It's not. Uh, it's probably more exciting if you're not keeping an eye out for it when it shows back up. But. Uh, so uh, we have a little bit of the aftermath of her revealing herself as a priest, and she's still kind of picking around and investigating stuff. And yet again, this weird parallel with Alien Three, where she goes where she's not welcome, and she meets with a rather hostile response. They don't ever threaten to do anything, you know, in terms of like they, they threaten to chop off her fingers, but not literally metaphorically. Uh, but there's mm-hmm. no like threat of sexual violence or anything. You, obviously, sex is in the environment because of the guy who's hitting on her. But the people who are actively threatening her are just like, get away from our stuff, not or we're going to do something really untoward, you know. Um, right. But but you still have a lot of that vibe carried over from Alien 3 at a time where almost certainly they wouldn't have necessarily known the content of Alien 3, even though to some degree it's almost like a response to Alien 3, the same way that Salvation kind of bounces off. And it's, it's just weird. I'm sure the development process had a lot to do with that. I think maybe the script might have leaked at some point, but I don't want to cast aspersions. I really feel like this is more a response to what they think is going to happen as opposed to them literally, you know, interacting with the movie that came to exist, especially right. even at the script level, I'm sure a lot of stuff got changed before the actual movie finally hit based on my understanding of that tortured process. Yeah. And that makes me feel a lot better because I was wondering how, in what world do these books just independently appear, you know, independently from each other? Because I was I even, I was like, who is the editor in this collected edition and is he working in comics and is he on twitter or something can i ask this guy was there like a mandate to say put religion in these things but now that you you frame it like that it was almost just like the the vibe of the franchise at the time surrounding alien 3 it look makes we're all sense. just making movies where terrorists take over a complex and this one person is sneaking around beating everybody you know <laughs> like, no, yeah. no 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 I, I, I think it's more dante's peak uh deep impact where oh we're both going to do a movie about a rock falling out of the sky but we're coming at it from different angles right or uh armageddon and whatever weren't there two asteroid movies oh no too? sorry i'm sorry I'm, I'm actually it's volcano and dante's peak and a deep impact versus armageddon so sorry i'm oh okay. they're, they're 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 uh doppelgangers but they're i was comparing two together that were not the actual parallels of one another right <laughs> Right, but you do mention you do mention like editors and stuff and this is kind of a weird situation because the book is written by Paul Jenkins and how do you have familiarity or, with him uh Peter Milligan oh is this Peter Milligan right? I yeah this was Paul oh crap I'm way off then eh, ignore me I don't know what I'm talking about well no I would that was part of my thing was uh, uh Peter Milligan and Paul Jenkins and Pat Mills and who else was in my head they were just like these British guys maybe even Grant Morrison at the you know in the beginning because he had that his last name also at M, but I this was right around. I was late to the game, following uh, a lot of specific creators and especially writers, and uh, so I would have known Peter Milligan when this came out. But I probably couldn't have done a really great job distinguishing him from Pat Mills or Grant Morrison. Well, but this is the funny thing: is again, I read this story, but I I have not I, I, I both over prepared for this podcast and under prepared because usually I do a lot more background on the specific story that we're talking about. But in this case, what I did instead was. Re- read a bunch more stuff uh, in a short span of time than would have been for the best. You know, I, I pushed the podcast too far into the month. We're kind of running out of time to get this out within the month of January. And I decided to cover more material than I thought I was going to cover with you on the episode. Because again, we're going from an anthology format to us, two people talking about two to three stories. And so for some reason, I got it stuck in my head, possibly because I'm doing all this research on other things. I get Paul Jenkins stuck in my head. So I have a whole thing about, well, Paul Jenkins working on this story. It's like, Paul Jenkins didn't write this story, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And by the way, that tombstone's going to come back later. Uh, yeah, Peter 
Morgan is not Paul Jenkins. Right. They're just two British guys. Maybe I would have trouble fi- picking him out in a pub, but I really should be able to read the credit box at least. Yeah, Peter <laughs> Milligan was definitely an established writer at this point, not an editor, no inside right. information. Unlikely, I mean, unless he's, again, he was known and he was working for like Vertigo and DC and the other story was written by Dave Gibbons. It is entirely possible that these guys could have been talking about the stories in the pub and doing a Swamp Thing, Man Thing kind of situation where, oh, you're going to go left and I'm going to go right and intentionally paralleling because again, these stories both come out in the same year. They're both serialized in the uh, UK book and yet telling, again, very much Deep Impact Armageddon. One of these stories is going at it, coming at it from a very different place from the other thing, even though they're touching on similar material. It's possible they they work this out between themselves. They could have, it is a couple of Englishmen, known guys. Uh, Milligan, uh, at this point in time, I would have known him he, from writing Shade the Changing Man. Yep. Uh, I gave that a shot. I wasn't, I'd never invested in it, but it did have some nice artwork by Chris Bocciolo. And he'd also done, of all the things you remember, he did one of the stupid Batman Returns tie-in prestige format one shots with Catwoman with a Brian Stelfreeze cover. I think they're all Stelfreeze covers, painting. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, I, and I bought the Catwoman one because I was a big Catwoman fan. Still, weirdly, am I don't ever think of myself as a Catwoman fan, but I am because I, I've bought an awful lot of Catwoman stuff for a guy who theoretically isn't supposed to be a Catwoman fan. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I bought that and I read that and I thought it was okay. Milligan's a guy who I, I, I like him fine. I, like, if he were to write something that I would be naturally inclined to read, then it'd be like, okay, cool, I'll read this Milligan thing. Certainly a guy that I, I don't have a prejudice against, but he's also never blown me away. It's like he's he's good, he's thoughtful, he's definitely in that vertigo lane with most of his work, whether or not he actually writes it. But it seems like every time I read his stuff, I like it okay, but never enough to go, I want to buy that new Peter Milligan thing, you know? Yeah. And I've read stuff I, with him since then. It's not like he's he's some, some unknown to me or anything. I've read enough of his stuff, but, and I don't, again, it's, it's not like Alan Grant where it's like, oh my God, not Peter Milligan again. I, but I just, uh, but I'm not doing cartwheels over him either. It's just like, okay, cool. Let's, let's give it another shot. I hope it works out. He, uh, the first thing that he did that I uh, was over the moon about was uh, Shade the Changing Man 39. And it was a, it was maybe a too clever and maybe I was too much of a teenager, but it's basically a story about, you know, the, the author, I think Peter Milligan is a character in it or, you know, an anagram of Peter Milligan, like uh, an analog. He, uh, and he's writing and it's that the, in the era of Shade where he's in the hotel and he's, you know, stealing from life and it, for his stories and it's impacting the real life. And it, it's like a little meta piece. And I thought that was pretty great. And uh, that's when I made the deliberate conscious decision to go, okay, this guy who, you know, I think he did some Animal Man, like a, in between Grant Morrison and the next guy, he did a run. I know he did a, a, with Mignola, again, he did that Dark Knight, Dark City arc in Batman that came out after the movie. The oh, yeah. Movie. Interesting parallel you got there, too. Yeah. I remember that one being quite controversial. People did not like them doing what they did with Riddler in that story. And that certainly did not stick. Yeah. It was, uh, well, it was weird because I should have looked this up. I, I'm pretty sure it was before that, where Neil Gaiman did that uh, Secret Origins Batman villains issue. And it was his story was about the Riddler lamenting that everything was going dark and like in, you know, grim, dark, awful, you know, scary. And how come things just can't be fun anymore? I think that came out before Dark Knight, Dark City, where the Riddler is like shove a ping pong ball down the baby's neck and then you have to give him a tracheotomy so he doesn't die, which is that was a little much. But uh, I did not like Dark Knight, Dark City. I did like the covers. I did like the, I think Kieran Dwyer did the art and I liked it, but I, I didn't really like that story. And I was presented with him again. I didn't know it was him specifically, but the guy in 1990 at the comic store, I went in there and he said, you got to check out these two new books, Shade the Changing Man. And I did not get Shade, but his other recommendation was uh, 
the first issue of the four-issue mini Books of Magic, which is where uh, I first would have seen Paul Johnson's art in the fourth issue. And that's the guy who did this. So it's a little loop-de-loop around Peter Milligan and Paul Johnson. But Peter Milligan as a writer, like I was the right age. Like I was that first generation Vertigo kid. So he, you know, eventually Shade, not initially, but eventually Shade and uh, Enigma. And he did that Egypt series. And then there was stuff that I didn't always get all of it. You know, I would try to fish it out of the cheapy bins. But uh, I think this is later, but like Greek Street, even he had all these like these Vertigo minis that when I see them, you know, I'll, I'll grab them. And I actually just got this past summer, I got the big fancy, uh, I think it's Burger Books, put out the deluxe edition of Enigma. And I read it all in one go. And that's actually, it's pretty good. Like, I think that would have been a book where, you know, people would look at it and go, oh man, I got to read more about from this, you know, more stuff this guy did. But uh, that's under a lot of the people's radar for some reason. I don't know. Yeah, I remember Greek Street sounded like an interesting premise and I might have even read the first issue. But that was also, I think, in the latter days of Vertigo, right before the shuttering. And it just yep. didn't seem to have a long life. And then, of course, I mean, Burger Books in general didn't really do what they probably hoped they would do, which would be like a second coming of Vertigo, just like when Shelley Bond was working at, um, what was it, Titan or someplace? And and she was trying to like do her own Vertigo and it just never yeah, quite came like, together. It seemed like you, you need probably the Warner Brothers resources to pull something without that grant off. It's hard. Yeah. Like, how, what do you do? How does an editor go off on their own without a publisher necessarily, you know? I mean, she had the, the contact list. Yeah, there but, is that. But but not the, probably not the deep pockets. Power of the pen, exactly. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, being told you can't go to a certain place piques our heroine's curiosity and she was already poking around to begin with. So eventually she hears a group of people leaving the compound, which these guys are such cowards that the thought of them even going outside under any circumstances is sort of surprising to her, I think. Yeah. She follows them into the night. They lead her back to the obelisk, whatever it is. Do they ever identify exactly what it is? Uh, they they don't. They do. Um, I'm trying to find out really quick. I Because she suspects that they're going out for a couple of nights and they even, they under the pretense of she was just in a spaceship crash, they're giving her sedatives. Mm-hmm. And so she doesn't, you know, that I, I didn't make gotten, that connection, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And so she's she's not entirely with it, you know, the first couple of nights she's there. And then when she's been there for a while and she starts, uh, she says she starts snooping, she sees that there's uh, some of these guys are going out first, out for a stroll, <laughs> right? <laughs> and she meets uh, John, the guy who's uh, a booze bag who's kind of coming on to her. And they talk a little bit about, uh, uh, you know, her vows. And she's got some kind of uh, medical condition on top of it that I'm not familiar with. But uh, she's, you know, talking about why she doesn't drink. And then they end up almost having a little, I mean, it kind of comes across like, you know, he's drinking, she's sneaking out at night and they kind of move in for a kiss, but it's really creepy because his eyes are wide open, you know, in this, in this, what should be like a romantic panel, I guess. And then she pulls away, uh, which is almost what you do as a reader when they're moving in. And then you're like, oh, what is he doing? You know, he's just staring at her and she pulls away and goes back to her room until a night or two later, she hears those guys, you know, moving around in the middle of the night again. And she goes to follow them. And they end up, she realizes after a while that she, that they're leading her back to that obelisk that she had encountered. And there was also, I don't think we talked about it. She calls it the, uh, where did she say it? She, anyway, when There's she first about a meet, wine stain, like, a, like, a, like yeah. a wine stain both mark on the obelisk. Right. Which, I mean, I guess you should have, I guess I should have seen that coming. I mean, but it, uh, she follows them out into the, the jungle. They deposit something on the obelisk and then they flee. She's like, they're moving away quickly. And so she's, you know, she's not gonna be able to get back to the settlement without following them. So she has to be quick about it. And she, <laughs> this, 
Uh, she goes up to the obelisk to see what's there, and it's uh, bundled up in a cloth, and she goes and retrieves it, and it is... Uh, I got a lot of questions about this, too, but it's a... It's a... It's a, it's a swaddled, baby. swaddled infant, and uh, yeah. uh, uh, ironically, the panel before that, she even says, oh, Jesus, the swaddled infant. Yeah, and it's yeah, a swaddled infant. And then before you can it, figure and out... Isn't there a reference to, in this story at some point to cavalry, too? Yes, there is, and that was... Uh, how uh, I mean, in my mind, that's how I know that she's Catholic because she either reference uh, refer- she references I think it's Bethlehem and Calvary in the same yeah she's like I found the settlement how did I find it was I guarded uh, guided by the invisible star to Bethlehem or you know my luck it's going to turn out to be Calvary so you got the Jesus born and dying reference on page four yeah and so this is the the point where as a reader I feel like I am off the rails like I don't know what the heck is going to happen in this dang book just why is there a baby on this thing the you know they make a they don't belabor it but they reference more than once the stains on the stone so you get the idea that there's been a series of babies uh, deposited on this stone in the middle of this jungle and at this point my my first question is why isn't the baby making any sounds is that like a in-story thing that baby is not crying or is it just like a creative choice they don't decide to put the wham you know sound effect uh the next thing is do do aliens eat people? Like, is that a thing? So that's a, an interesting point because that's something that threw me as well. And it's something I've never fully understood with the aliens franchise. Logically, you know, story-wise, it makes perfect sense. But logically, like some people, they kill some people, they harvest. Uh, yep. And how do they decide one for the other? And you say, well, one's some one's a threat and one isn't. Yada yada yada. But no, it's not consistent. It's they kill you when it's uh, it works for the story, and they cart you away when it works for the story. Uh, but it, that was one thing that threw me off in reading and reading about the first movie, Alien. Uh, I, I don't know, recall if it was in the script or if it's something that is discussed mm. in one of the adaptations. I but, know where you're going with this. But they talk about how, in, in particular, the early victims of uh, the alien creature, it's surviving off of eating them. You know, that's that's how the creature is, but it, which doesn't make sense either because where does he get the mass to become a, the full-grown xenomorph if he hasn't eaten anybody yet because he just burst out of John hurt he didn't actually eat john hurt so where does he get the biomass to become an adult xenomorph drone but ultimately he is supposed to be eating the members of the crew and that's how it's surviving and in fact there's a note in there where the reason why the alien doesn't attack ripley immediately upon being you know uh, in the escape pod with her at the end of the movie was because it was already full and it was basically saving her for later for the trip you know um so so yes not only do the aliens eat people but they also will, and again, I, I'm not, I don't recall which story this was I read because I did not get this impression from the movies at any point to my recollection. I think it's solely from the comic books I got this from, is that they're also using the humans as uh, building material. They take like the the meat and the bones, the 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 the, uh, the, the chattel, whatever you want, not the chattel, the uh, um, trife, the what's what the, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, charnel? Is that what it is? Like Maybe something? charnel, the, the stuff that they don't have a use for the, in terms of like ingesting it or or impregnating it, they take the, that raw material and they use it as building material. So the hives are actually built out of pieces of aliens that have died, xenomorphs that have died, and also pieces of humans and other animals that they encounter. It's it's sort of like uh, the they're, they're kind of like the, the Sawyer family from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where they don't let anything go to waste and they, they're using mm. these, this raw material for the building of the hives. So uh, that is not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> I, thought, <laughs> I thought you were going to say because I after uh, my first read, I went to look to see if 
if aliens eat people and i came across a and i i don't remember i should have written down where i get read this but they it was an idea that the aliens are like insects and they only live for maybe a day or maybe you know they have a short lifespan that's mm-hmm. how they grow so fast they have like this accelerated life cycle and that they there's a it's a second they they don't eat because they don't eat at all mm-hmm. and but they either uh find uh they have an egg and a face hugger gets on the person and then that's how they can reproduce and then that the alien can take a human or t- can take hosts back to the hive where the eggs are or if there's no queen they can turn the people into eggs and i guess there's like a director's cut that has a scene that alludes to that or something mm-hmm. like that do you know what i'm talking about maybe they're they're always they well in the first two movies they cut scenes in which you've got major characters that are taken back to the hive and being incubated and maybe they they i know in aliens that's not the case it's just a matter of paul riser character carter being impregnated but it might have been the dallas in alien was something like that but i think it was just yeah. a situation where he'd also been impregnated so i don't i don't think so but i'm not saying i have any uh any authority or any uh expanded awareness of that i just i'm not familiar with that okay i'm not super familiar with it either but it was so well that, and, and, and again you gotta understand this project has mostly been me reading the comic books and so there might be stuff that i'm getting from these books that is now informing my thoughts on the property that is not canon you know so that yeah. that's definitely a thing too because there's also a thing that they set up in uh the, particularly the verheiden stories where the aliens can actually have a different time spans in terms of the the incubation period that the queen essentially pheromonally and telepathically determines how quickly you get impregnated and the chest burster comes out it can take weeks or it can be instantaneous uh she basically can move them like pawns and, and use them whenever she wants to it's not a thing i think that they do in the movies but that is something that was present in the comic books but what's funny to me is when you're talking about the fast growing thing and not needing biomass to, to do that i'm picturing like the aliens are actually like those novelty sponges that you drop in water and they just expand <laughs> <you know? laughs> yeah that would yeah that would make sense i don't think uh, uh what was i gonna say anyway so the the idea that these aliens are or the, the alien singular is eating human infants it you know it knocks me back like i don't understand what's happening again like mm-hmm. i feel like i'm just on my heels you know like i was at the beginning of like is this a continuation of salvation is this you know where is this coming from uh and see and that's one of the things that's interesting about this story comparing it specifically to salvation is that you really only have one major twist in salvation the revelation that there was a synthetic which you know it's one of those things where it's like oh i'm reading an aliens comic it's one of the people see really gonna be synthetic you know it's, yeah. it's especially at this point in the story it's like what movie doesn't have at least one of those moments right so it's not a huge twist but i think there's a thing where the story is written from the perspective of the protagonist but as we've discussed it, his reliability as a narrator is in question throughout that book and and how much you invest in him as a character i think is highly individual but i think there's a tendency to, to distance yourself from the narrative you're not really involved with what's happening to the characters you're involved in the story not necessarily the individual characters and what they're going through and so there's not really a lot of opportunity for major twists because it's not that kind of story where this right. story it's it's very driven by the, the the interactions between the individual characters and the mystery of what's happening there really isn't a mystery in salvation it's we're trying to survive until we decide no i'm not worried about surviving i'm worried about 
killing the alien threat. Where this one, it's like, you don't know what anybody's motivation is. People have obvious motivations, not so obvious motivations. Why why is she not telling them she's a priest, which does tell them a priest, why is she still entertaining romantic thoughts with the guy? And it's like, there's a lot more ambiguity here. And so you have opportunities to, to you know, mess with people because we're invested in the, uh, the interactions more than like a, a grander story. But we also know that there's a mystery there. And we, as readers, don't have a clear through line. We, we've seen alien stories before. We're trying to apply stuff from other alien stories to the story. But this isn't playing out like an alien story is supposed to play out. There is supposed to be a bunch of aliens. There's supposed to be a queen. There's supposed to be a nest. There's supposed to be guys with guns. There's supposed to be all this stuff that we're expecting. The formula. And he's intentionally subverting the formula and right. telling a different kind of story. Probably, and this is the thing that I, I, I've complained about in the past and, and I have to commend Milligan on. He's looking at what everybody else is doing and trying to figure out what can I do that they're not doing? What? How can I tell an original story in a summer where people are constantly turning out aliens things? What can I do that definitely won't be replicated by other people? And yet clearly there is replication, possibly intentional, possibly not, but he still manages to zig so many times that he can't help but find a path that we're not expecting him to go on because he's, it, it's almost like the Simpsons uh, a joke thing where they're throwing so many jokes at you that five of them may not work, but only one of them has to hit and it's going to hit you hard. Uh, right. This has got so many different twists to it and so much stuff that isn't clear at first that you can't help but be caught off guard and it, and it does jar you. You are like, okay, what in the heck's going on? And I do find that very engaging. So it's weird. I, I, I kind of engage with a story more than I do Salvation, even though I think that I respect and and am in, more intrigued by the various layers of that story. Where this one, it's just good craft, good storytelling, where it's like, well, what's going to happen? It's a ripping yarn, you know? Yeah, I think uh, Salvation is almost like a, a dogma. It's it's like a it's a platonic like a microcosm right like it, it doesn't you might be able to relate to that guy but you don't get the impression that that's the real world you know it's like it's aliens it's he's almost like an archetype he's more a, it's, than a, it's a real kind of a character. parable right it's yeah. a parable because like again with all the biblical themes of that story I, you know I remember like from Sunday school where they would try to tell children's stories and they'd probably try to get a little bit more of Pinocchio into the Ahab you know what I mean like try to kind yeah. of juice it up a little bit but when you read the actual scripture it's fairly dry it's this happened and then this happened and this happened and then it's not Aesop's fables either it's like there's stuff where okay this is the end result and you're like was there a moral there am I supposed to figure out what the moral is and of course there were learned individuals who have been figuring out whether or not there was a moral there They're, they found a way of making sure there was a moral there but right. it, it, that's what salvation is a little bit like it's like it could, the glass could be half full or half empty you get to decide because there's enough ambiguity there intentional clearly intentional ambiguity to where is this a parable am I supposed to learn something from this is this, is this like a, a, a platonic idea of how we should engage with the aliens to make sure that they don't propagate by doing everything in our power as individuals to exterminate them entirely and is that morally justified it's like there's a lot going on there again where you've got the narrative but you've got the meta narrative but at the same time it's still again it's an abstract you're not invested in that because these are iconic characters these are um, ciphers that are, are giving you circumstances and you're you're interpreting that you know you're bringing something to that story where this story is basically just you know it's a mystery it's like well what's going to happen next yeah and it's and it's more like again the bizarro image the mirror image it's the it's the complete opposite you know these people are rendered realistically they make horrible mistakes like people do you know she's wakes up in the middle of the night and you know almost forsakes her vows 
house to make out with this drunk guy who's who's been drunk the whole time she's known him. You know what I mean? You know, she's struggling with her faith. I think she's, you know, uh, kind of skipped over the little the flashbacks to her the, her life's initial encounter with an alien. Uh, and she, you know, she has all these well, horrible uh, things. You know, happen, actually, all these that's just it, though. We really haven't because we're, that's, a, that's a whole aspect. They've been alluding to a prior interaction with the alien. Right. There either it was extremely personally impactful for her to have been chased by the alien after the crash, or you're like, well, wait, maybe it was an alien involved with the crash because we don't know the context of her constantly revisiting it. It could be just simple PTSD. Not that there's such a thing as simple PTSD. Right. But um, she just encountered this alien. I would probably be haunted by having just encountered an alien and having to process such a, 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 a extraordinary change in circumstances in my own life under that circumstance. So I could see where, oh, you know, if I just got hit by a car, I'm, I, I might have just happened, but I'm still going to be like really wary of cars for a little bit after that, right? Right, um, right. So is it a deeper thing or is it a new trauma that she's just processing? The story doesn't tell you that initially and and it plays on you as the reader. It, 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 again, it's a really great craft on Milligan's part. You, they, you, they, is there something there or is there not something there? You don't really know yet, but they do eventually lead to a flashback. But when did the flashback come? Well, the first thing we got to do is she's got to find the baby, try to save yes. the baby, get attacked by the alien, fall off a cliff running from the alien. And that's and a then... great sequence too. That's an amazing action sequence. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, the Paul Johnson, sometimes he has that, you know, like a painter, comic artist. They, sometimes they they don't have the dynamic. Uh, their, their art's not as dynamic as like a, you know, like it's not like a Jack Kirby kind of thing where it's flying off the page at you. But this, that action sequence, again, I think is fantastic horror comics. You know, she's got the baby. So already you're like, what is happening here? <laughs> There's a baby. You see the hiss sound effect. And then, you know, the alien presents itself. She freaks out, attacks, runs. And then the whole falling off the cliff thing, I think is, uh, is super good. It's super just kinetic and anxiety inducing the way the page is laid out. And it's painted, you know, so he really, you know, everything is realized on the page with shapes and tones and not lines. But uh, the way it's put together, it's just, it, it's like anxiety painted onto the page. It's incredible. It's incredible storytelling. And just to prolong the moment too, is they don't go back to, you know, what happened to baby, what happened to the nun. We're like, hey, let's go back to the the the, uh, the encampment and see the <laughs> alien has made its way back there and is now killing its way through people. It's like, you know, is there a connection there? We'll see. You know, that kind of thing. And then we get back to their actual subject of the story for the most part. Yeah, I mean, that was, it's one of those uh, things where, I don't know if any of the other, Salvation had that too, but this page where it's, you know, it brings the focus back to the, they call it the devil's anvil, that stone that the uh, the baby was on. And then they cut back to the encampment and <laughs> you know, there's the uh, the wonderful uh, alien. I, don't, it's, I mean, it's pretty gross actually if you really kind of stop and look at it, but it's the alien is shooting his uh, secondary alien mouth tongue through a dude's mouth and out the back of his head which uh, is gross but it's pretty cool it's the kind of thing that excites you in, a, in an alien comic in a horror comic it's pretty good and then they do cut back to her and she's there and it's almost as shocking as it was to see the baby she escapes with it so you're like well good for her and then the next you know when we circle around back to her the baby's gone and you're like what is happening in this comic you know how is it that the, you know you at this point all bets are off right what do you get there's, there's not a lot of aliens there's one you know you don't know if they brought the ship down i don't think so what are these guys doing they're feeding babies to one not a bunch of one alien they're sacrificing these babies and the one that she saves she dropped it down the river it, you know birds got it or something but it's not there she's got the bloody blanket and that's 
when uh, I don't know if it's, you'd call it the point of no return, but she starts screaming at the godless sky, you know, and asking, you know, why didn't you let this baby live? I managed to save her, but she's not alive. So <laughs> it's crazy. And then she makes her way back to the encampment and then violence ensues because like, you know, these people haven't been through enough, but then that's when the punching and the beating starts yet again. It's like, yeah, <laughs> well, they, they're like, oh, oh, thank God you're here. We thought that you were eaten by the alien. <laughs> right in the mush you know bam she just socks that dude and uh you know because she's mad that they're feeding babies to aliens which it's not funny and i shouldn't be laughing when i say it but it's uh it's something else well it's one of those things where the the story has gotten so dark that it's like you know laugh or cry (laughs) what what, which way are you gonna go there it's it's almost like so overwhelming so oppressively dark that you 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 like it's almost like a nervous laughter or like whistling by the graveyard it's like how how much more bleak is this going to get we've already been to caster's keep how much worse can it get oh well, let's start beating on the nun and calling her a murderer and it's like what because she took away their sacrifice the sacrifice that was keeping the alien at bay and now four people have died you know grown people not these stupid kids that we can afford to just toss off you know we're going to give all our male children to the the night king you know wait what 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 right and, and, and yeah. we're really bad that we're mad at the nun we're not just going to yell at her and say this is all your fault we're going to actually like have jonah hex start beating on her yeah and it and that is also also a, uh, a fantastically kinetic I mean it's a little much because he's just really like both his hands together like a giant hammer he just clobbers her but you know they're mad she screwed up their deal they had going on where they would not uh, get killed by aliens and they would feed the aliens babies and you're you know she does uh, lean into them and you know he's the the, uh, the buddy her, uh, her buddy says you know you shouldn't have touched the baby you didn't know what you were doing she says I know exactly what I'm doing you guys are the ones who are lost and it kind of you know to me I, maybe she doesn't actually literally say lost but you know that's the, the point where this is a cartoonishly nightmare world but this is the clergy uh, to worshiper dynamic right like she's trying to put them on the, the right path so to speak it's just not usually with punching so and she actually this is where this is the other thing where I like they, these guys are Catholic she says you're no better than the devil worshippers sacrificing children to Satan which I mean there's no Satan in this story you know there's no we haven't talked about devil worship worshippers but she the way she just kind of brings that up well, is but like again it's a thing, but right? we did last episode we we're talking about satanic panic and all this other stuff uh, as part of the religious discussion and neither one of us have read the story and then she's going right for that that you know that's it's like true. you you're playing the card you're playing the card we were just talking about that completely yeah, independent of having you know we've never read the story and like boom here we go yeah it's yeah that's a that's a really great point she uh the guy does counter back with our devil the difference is our devil's real and then he does he has this line these aren't real babies and she says what the what are you talking about i had the baby and he goes come with me to the the building that we never let you get close enough to figure out uh what's happening and it's this uh, like a giant dome and she's in there and this is another thing where i start i had a, I, it might have just been like adding to the surreal presentation of it but it, there's a there's another person there with them when they walk in right unless that's like a head or something it's, it seems like there's more people there than just the two of them uh, than just uh, Annie yeah I, I don't I don't think that Scarface guy I, I should point out so they, one of the, the guy who is the most aggressive towards her uh, he had alien blood splash on his face he basically does look like Jonah Hex and his yep. wife had been killed by the aliens and he's pointing out you know I have had a real tragedy you're trying to save fake babies because we're right. growing them in test tubes these are not that's why the baby wasn't crying earlier because it's not a, it, it doesn't have a brain we're growing these things without brains it's just raw genetic material 
It's just sim cells. You know, uh, no, it doesn't count. We these, we can sacrifice these babies, and it's not a true sacrifice. Right. No, that, no, uh, no subtext or politically charged elements there. Well, before they, they before they, you know, when they're, he's walking her through the dome, and she sees this is more great horror comics for my money because she sees what's happening before we do, right? Like she's actually facing the reader, looking at this baby operation, and when you turn the page, you get a full page, full splash page of, you know, it looks like the thing it reminded me of is uh, one of those wet markets, you know, where there's just like, we're here, we're selling lizards for food. Here's 500 lizards in a in a one gallon tank. You know, they're just packed in there. It, it's like that, but with uh, infants and, fe- and fetuses in these tanks and tubes. And you're just like, what? <laughs> And he does, there is a line, you know, he, the, uh, John is claiming they're not human. And Anne says, well, then what are they? And he goes, oh, they're genetic creations. And like, well, what in the, isn't just the baby a genetic creation? Like to me, you know, I, I, I felt like they put that in there to delineate the difference between maybe natural conceived baby. And, you know, maybe it's more like a, an engine, like a structured or engineered thing that uh, maybe it's more like one of those androids than a regular person. You know, it's something that they design and build but uh still infants and fetuses and stuff so well and this goes back to criticisms i've had on on past episodes where i didn't feel like a a lot of the writers were reading what the other writers were doing and and responding to that or developing that further and this is a concept that goes back to at least labyrinth i'm not sure if it came up in renegade or not uh no was it god see again those those mirror comic books a labyrinth and rogue uh where they both have scientists bad scientists who are mm. growing stuff and splicing stuff one of the two they were creating clones because they were generating clones that were uh, 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 um, with amputated limbs and no brains and they were using them to incubate aliens with but it, there was complications the cloning process wasn't perfect or it wasn't working quite the way it needed to in order to sufficiently grow an, an alien and that and they that's why they were ending up harvesting people within the complex if I remember correctly so they have established previously in the comics and exclusively in the comics because we don't really have cloning in the movies until the fourth movie um, but they, they do have these these clones these sort of imperfect clones for various reasons I think for organ transplants and stuff and it's it's established within the comics and so they're playing off of that essentially the you, like you say we're used to aliens propagating but we don't have an alien queen we have one drone and it's apparently injured and maybe in some way defective or something they talk about how it's not quite right for an alien because this right. is a world in which they've been dealing with aliens for a while and it's clearly building off of stories that have established that we're years into dealing with alien infestations as as Earth people. And so the alien needs human blood as far as the, the villagers are concerned. It's like they, it can't just live off of animals. It needs that human flavor in its right. in its in its diet or it's going to go buck wild on the, the plant, uh, the, the, the settlement. So they give the babies that are human enough mixed up with the other animals that it's eating in the wild, which is again something we've established, and you know, just salvation alone, you know, had had them, you know, feed off of and incubating off of animals beyond humans, and of yep. course, Alien Three establishes the whole thing where you take on aspects of the creature that you're impregnating, that kind of stuff. So this is all building off of lore. And Milligan's able to not only develop concepts that were originated from other writers and advance the overall narrative of the Aliens comics, but also have these really fine twists, not only just novel narrative 
narrative twists, but also we're dealing with some heavy philosophical stuff now. We're dealing with, well, to what degree do we owe these genetic creations, the, the, the ethics of, of harvesting them and creating them for specific purposes to be harvested? And are these humans, are we not genetic creations ourselves? Pretty heavy concepts for an alien story. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, like I said, like when they first reveal the baby and then they reveal the baby's gone, you're just like, how can this momentum keep going? And it, <laughs> it just does. It's just so, you know, it, it's such a wild ride. You know, she's, and they, again, uh, Paul Johnson, the you know, the way he renders it up kind of looks like uh, David Lloyd, actually, now that I'm looking at it again, but the way he just has her expression rendered, it's so real. You know what I mean? It's so tangible and visceral and textured and the opposite of the platonic distant parable of salvation, which I we have well established. I love that. I'm not trying to disparage it, but it's the opposite of, of this, right? It's so you know dark and dirty and murky and muddied and conflicted, I think, too, because the other, in salvation, the guy, he figures out what he wants to do. And I mean, he, there's conflict, but he's not a conflicted person, I don't think, compared to these people. In, in fact, the, one of the problems is that he has such clarity that he, he has the clarity of a zealot. It, it, there, it's a dangerous kind of, mm-hmm. you know, again, when he turns on the synthetic, that's not a rational reaction. That's a, 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 a an emotional reaction, but it's contextualized as he's, you know, oh, you were this awful temptation for me, taking you off the path of the righteous. I'm going to destroy you. And I'm going to destroy all these creatures. And he frames it as though, well, that's the natural progression, my realization of a, of a, of a higher truth and my purpose in life when really he, mm-hmm. he got mad uh, he was a, he was an angry incel taking it out on the robot you know uh, <laughs> yeah. or, or, or it could go either way again the story is set up to where you can interpret it in various ways but like he said these are icons these are images of what a human could be but this is a story about actual human beings and rendered as such a lot of these alien stories have dealt with religious aspects the whole heaven hell thing especially in the summer of Alien 3 but before that there was also a lot of uh, uh, meta- metaphors for sexual violence, uh, fall, you know, a forced pregnancy, things like that. Uh, this does that as well because this is a story about you know uh, unwanted creations and, and abused creations uh, for nefarious ends potentially. Or can you rationalize these things? The whole concept of aliens, impregnation is a huge part of that. Mm-hmm. But dealing with the actual baby, the infant, the moral uh, response, you know, obligation of taking one life to create another life and all this kind of stuff it's something that's inherent in the property and yet to my recollection i don't think that aspect specifically the conception and the the fetus uh, you know all that murky stuff that comes with that i don't think that's ever been addressed in an alien story up to this point so it's something that it, 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 in retrospect is obvious yes why aren't we dealing with the we're, we're, we're all thinking about the the um assault aspect but we're not thinking about the byproduct of that so it, it's right. a natural argument to have and yet to my recollection it hasn't been had before so it's like it's genius it's so obvious why didn't somebody do this earlier than this you know i didn't even think about this why didn't i think about this you know so it's pretty impressive i think yeah i think i mean that's really uh because at first blush he doesn't do a lot of things that aliens stories do and we like we talked about that before like you know for me you've got uh aliens you've got to have you know a strong female character 
picture, you've got to have the corporation, you've got to have an uh, an android. And that, oh, I mean, the strong female character is in here, but the corporation is not, and the android isn't, right? But the concepts behind those, like, like abstracted a little bit away from a corporation, you've still got a bunch of probably good people doing bad things by breeding these infants in a giant fish tank or whatever the heck this is, you know, you've still got uh, artificial life and the question presented, is this valuable or not? Is it as valuable as a uh, human life or is it human life? You know, those are questions that alien stories deal with. He just, you know, Milligan just kind of abstracted a level or two. And so I think it's all still there. I think it's a great alien story, but in the way that he, you know, you usually have to deal with, like you say, like the face hugger, the traumatic uh, event, and then the, you know, the pregnancy allegorically, it's still, it's a different mechanism, but that's still happening. There's an alien out there. And because the aliens out there, these things exist, you know, and they're not face huggers and chest bursters, but it's, you know, it's like I said, it's abstracted another level and it's a way to think about it's a different facet of the same concept, I guess. He's smart. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's like you said, like the, the, you think that, oh, I need to have a corporation that's story, right? And you mm-hmm. do have a corporation. Uh, you know, you got the whole thing. Well, is a corporation a person? No, but is a corporation an organism? Yeah, really it is. And ultimately, despite, you know, all the, 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 uh, cold black and white calculations that go into that, there's still humans engaged with the corporation. A corporation isn't Skynet. It doesn't exist without divorce from, from human, uh, um, input and, and human, mm-hmm. uh, drives. And what do we have here? We have a group of people or, 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 or this, you know, an organization that have come together and come to the conclusion that they are willing to do a thing that is questionable, if not outright evil, for their own self-interest, to advance their own self-interest. So in that way, it's exactly like the corporation. Yeah, it's something that they probably wouldn't do by themselves, right? But it's almost like this doom spiral of, I don't know if it's like peer pressure or there are expectations for each other. It kind of enables this monstrous behavior. Well, and also you're giving them more benefit than I'm, I'm willing to extend to them. I don't know that these necessarily are good people. And I think kind of part of the point is to show us they're, they're so far gone at this point that they're all drinking and violent. And, you know, look at the, the reaction. Instead of just telling this woman what happened or, or leveling with her or trying to, you know, explain the rationale and stuff, they're just like, we're going to do what we're going to do. And you just shut up and get out of our way. You you're, you don't have any input. You know, uh, we're going to drug you to keep you out of the way. And the minute you you step out of line, we're really we're ready to bash you because we already have a system here. You're, you're just a, 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 you know, a monkey ranch. Right? Um, right. So they're not even trying to relate to her on human terms. They've already made decisions and they've they really, I, I think there's some question about, are we even going to let this chick live? Do we want to just slit her throat and be done with her? Do we sacrifice her? And I don't think that again, because it's an organization, I don't think they have enough of structure to come to that decision yet. I think that it's one of these, like nobody's willing to go quite that far with it, but these aren't necessarily good people. They're just maybe not people that are quite bad enough to be willing to let's go murder the priest. You know, um, right. they've just collectively decided to do what they need to do to survive I, I i good i don't i don't think that it's about good or bad i think it's just like this is uh, we we as a group have decided this is what we need to do and this is what we're going to do whether it's right or wrong you know it's just this, right. is, this is the this is the path we're on and that's there there hardly anything more corporate than that it, especially in, in the corporate world how often is there just this like this misguided notion a bunch of people who may not even know what they're talking
talking about decide that they have to come up with a direction and so they pass that directive down to everybody else and then individuals decide whether or not they're going to follow the directive or not but the, as a corporation this is our, our goals for this quarter you know well their right. goal for this quarter is to not get killed by the alien and to keep making fake babies to feed the alien because this is what's working <laughs> for us so far it, yeah. it, it's, it's divorced from morality to some degree this is just what's on the agenda for this this season you know and I, I think that that's correct and I think it's the perfect environment for Anne to be dropped into because even her just being there you know because the, the Jonah Hex guy does say you know why don't we just let her get eaten we probably wouldn't have to that'll probably last for you know three or four days instead of two days and then uh, John clobbers him in another uh, gratuitously violent uh, panel <laughs> very neatly rendered but uh, that in hindsight there this is it's setting them up to be her congregation even as she's stepping away from you know her religious role and being a member of the clergy I think that that's at this point you can kind of talk about it because it's she's getting ready to go uh, what she ends up doing is saying I'm going to do what's right I'm not going to let you feed any more babies to that thing I'm going to go out there right and she goes if you know if I'm going to practice what I preach I'm going to go stand up to this thing but again I have to get in here when the the, I'm going to call her the suitor because I'm not bothering to remember all the names I like the story but I'm not committing these names to memory the suitor guy at no point does he say you're so sweet oh I'm so impressed with what you've accomplished and oh you're a priest how awesome I'm not going to bother you anymore because I recognize you've got a commitment to God he comes right out and says look slim pickings you're the person I want to have sex with I don't care if you're a priest or not I'm going to keep working on you and hopefully I'm going to break you down at some point because I want to have sex with you that's what I want from you not anything else but the sex and so when he attacks the Jonah Hex guy he doesn't punch him he he, he knees him in the groin I that's think true. that's an interesting choice in terms of where the violence is this is a guy who is being motivated by his own groin who is having the, uh, uh, the his target is being derailed by Jonah Hex and so he targets that other man's groin to establish dominance and to uh, uh, again uh, let him know I am continuing to work in my own self-interest I am seeking my sexual gratification which you are interfering so I'm going to attack your sexual organ in hopes of impressing the person that I eventually want to have sex with you know it's <laughs> it's still again it's a, it's corporate motive it's still I'm going to yield you know this this is the thing that I've I've set as my goal I'm and this is going to help me to accomplish my goal it's 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 very pointed it's very specific but also I have to say too this is the point where I was getting really upset with the story like you had mentioned casters keep you know <laughs> earlier on was like oh we're going to sacrifice some babies that was sort of like your way to say I don't know am I am I really on this ride you know this is this where I want to be going with this thing uh, I was still cool with let's sacrifice the baby it's when she's saying no these these babies and these test tubes they are they are humans they have souls and I will sacrifice my own life in defense of these unborn you know people and see again going into the story in my head in my brain this is Paul Jenkins who at this time would have been an editor at Dark Horse if I recall correctly or editor somewhere and, and I'm still a very a tundra, young right? maybe tundra? Tundra, tundra that sounds right and would have been writing one of his first stories and so and, and I'm, I'm reading this after uh, uh, Salvation and it's like this isn't Salvation you know I, I'm having a situation very much like when I saw Gross Point Blank and then I saw High Fidelity and High Fidelity wasn't Gross Point Blank 2 and it's like why aren't you Gross Point Blank 2 John Cusack is in right. both of these movies they came out like almost back to back why isn't this the sequel to a completely different movie well these are very similar movies but obviously very dissimilar ones as well and this story keeps not doing what I'm expecting it to do because I already had the template from the previous story and it's not doing that thing and now our heroine is on her soapbox telling me about how the clones 
clone babies or real babies and all of these guys they're doing evil and it's like is this a young writer who's getting on a soapbox and has an agenda is this what this story is and I was getting pretty upset because obviously I have my lefty agenda and this wasn't doing the thing that I wanted to do this wasn't teaching the moral parable that I wanted so I'm really starting to like turn on the story even though the entire story has been about flouting expectations and probably I would have given it a little bit more slack if I had been conscious that this is Peter Milligan a well-established veteran writer at this point in his career versus the guy I thought wrote the story but again <laughs> the problem that I'm having with the story at this point is I'm going in there with all these misconceptions that's on me that's my bad yeah. you know this story has the right if it wants to be a pro-life story it can be that I need to finish a story and then come to a conclusion but because of my knee-jerk reaction to that it's like how dare you and I'm, I'm, I'm already like getting like upset the story is making me upset it's like well <laughs> the story should have already been making me upset the story is intended to make you upset sucker you're doing exactly what the writer wants you to do you know you're, he's twisting you around his finger and you're not even seeing it yet so kudos to Milligan for messing with my head yeah he's uh he's really doing it here <laughs> putting the screws to and the reader then we get the flashback yeah and then this is where it's everything is the other ones that she i think she was like either dreaming them or they she was reflecting while she was you know asleep it contextualizes all of those and you get uh you find out that she was presumably on earth with her mother and her mother sacrifices herself by distracting the alien so that Anne can get away and she and by get away i mean she, her mom shoves her out the window backwards so she has to be staring face up at her mom as the aliens uh, overtake her, which is pretty bad news. That would give you uh, PTSD. Well, and interesting too, because A, they do, while while not showing you graphically the way they had previously with the jackhammer jaws, they make it fairly clear that she witnesses her mother being killed. It's not just that she gets shoved out of the way and she assumes that that's what happens. You get the impression that the last thing she sees on the way down while she's still looking up at her mother, realizing what's happening, is literally sees the sacrifice her mother makes to save her life but also they tell you that she is an ingrate that she's a child that expects too much her mom is really frustrated with her and tells her such immediately before this happens and that's again major like highlight here's your uh, wine colored spot you know again oh right. this is a person who's never satisfied a person who's always looking for something beyond their grasp I wonder if this is going to come up later on right and I think that in the way that the uh, you know the guy getting his uh, xenomorph friend kiss and his skull exploding is a great horror comic scene and the uh, interpersonal violence between the, the survivors is, a, is you know is really well done and it's kind of really visceral and graphic this panel is less graphic and more visceral this sequence I mean this flashback because the way and it's something I think you can only really do in comics right because that last panel this whole book is so realistically rendered right I mean what is that that last panel it's just like a bunch of is it like scribbles or splashes and you but the way you read it in the context is it's obvious that her mom is getting ripped apart by those aliens in a and it's in a really graphic way but it's not rendered and it's almost one of these things where it's worse because it's in your imagination and it's going to be as bad as your you know tolerance can let that run it's a key page in this book and i think it and it's really special like it's a exclusively the comics thing like you couldn't do that in a movie maybe in animation but it wouldn't work in the same way in prose either you know it's just that last panel 
original is so graphic. It's so, it implies such graphic violence and, and doesn't render it. That's what I think is really good about it. Well, what it reminds me of is I remember people were reviewing uh, Electro Assassin. And I, I want to say maybe it was uh, Troy Castro something. I remember the guy's name, but it was, he was a, a, a commentator for Amazing Heroes magazine. And I seem to remember him talking about, like, uh, had an article about Marvel Comics uh, stories and characters that should never be adapted to film, that don't make any sense. And uh, the one that my main takeaway was Werewolf by Night, because why would somebody pay to make a Marvel werewolf movie? You know, it's like you could just make your own werewolf movie. You don't have to pay for this thing. But another one I think that was pointed out, I want to say it was in that article, but maybe been some other review somewhere and I'm just conflating them, was Electro Assassin was a, a really successful miniseries that to some degree seems to have been lost to time. There are some of these books like Batman Year One where it never goes away. Right. Always, you're always waiting for an anniversary for people to tell you what an incredible work it is because it stands the test of time. And of course, back in the day, it was The Dark Knight Returns. And over the years, people have come to appreciate Year One so much more that it's even managed to eclipse Dark Knight, which was transformative text, something that mm -hmm. comics, there's comics before Dark Knight and comics after Dark Knight. But in terms of the structure and in terms of how the reader relates to what's being told the story, I think that the readership just appreciates Year One now more, right? Where Electro yeah. Assassin was another huge, huge book that everybody was talking about and everybody was was aping elements from that front. They made parody comics about this stuff, you know, right? And right. the thing about Electro Assassin, though, is the core story isn't really anything special. It's, it's just a bunch of violent action. You can't translate that to film because everything that made Electro Assassin special in its time was style. There was It was told in a style that people had not seen before and you could not replicate in any other medium. It was something that was perfect for comic books, specifically comic books in the 1980s and specifically Bill Sienkiewicz like reaching a zenith of, of, of his storytelling capabilities and in within the field. You know, Electro Assassin is why Alan Moore spent a personal fortune on trying to get big numbers made, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's interesting because you look at Paul Johnson, a lot of his stuff, very much like Alex Ross, is realistic elements of like Norman Rockwell, but also both of the artists have infused with them a lot of the stylistic works of religious painters, particularly the people who would have been working on mid-20th century uh, uh, like Sunday school books and stuff, where it's got yeah. a heightened reality, that, that sort of like glow, that ethereal glow, and that that solemnity uh, that you would ex associate with religious texts and, and religious artwork is in there. But then he'll go and he'll have those kinetic, impressionistic Bill Sienkiewicz moments. And, you know, Sienkiewicz is always a live wire. You know, part of what people loved about his work in that time period especially was that every panel looked like it's, it had cocaine sprinkled into the, the paint, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and so for you to take that, that Norman Rockwell and then suddenly, you know, splatter Jackson Pollock all over it, it, it's it's a very evocative. It's but caustic as well. It's almost like alien xenomorph blood being splashed and burning you. It's like it, it's it's a thing that doesn't belong within this context, and it makes it all the more jarring as a result of that. Yeah, and it it actually it does make you think about alien blood the way it's splattered and the way uh, it almost looks like you can see her rib cage in that panel somehow. Like it would be in the, you know I don't know if that I'm just looking at that wrong or if it's supposed to be something. No, else. no, I agree with you. I, I think it's a, a, probably an element of the dress that in the final panel because again this is one of those things you can only do in comics it's something that Jim Aparo used to do a lot that I would love where you have just a sliver of white gutter but there's a progression of time and an alteration of context where the, this is supposed to be a, a clean image it, one panel has legs in the air the other panel has her body falling right but mm -hmm. something has happened between one panel and the other panel that has profoundly affected this child to her core and this is seen through this sort of skeletal quality to the second panel but clearly in 
the panel prior to it, you've got flesh. It's a little girl. She's got socks. She's got patent leather shoes. She's got a skirt. And the next panel, she's some like voodoo doll. She's like been <laughs> a thing that's like not even like a, a, there's ragdoll physics at play. Is she falling into water? Is she underwater? Everything's blue. It's a flashback. What's even happening here? Well, like you said, you you it's a, it's impressionistic. Well, is that her rib cage? Probably not. Is it her seeing herself and her mother and seeing her mom's rib cage being ripped apart? Maybe. The whole point is it it's you're filling in the details and that's where the horror comes in. Uh, yep. You know that it's it's what Skinamarink was supposed to be and isn't. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're 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 the horror is coming from you're not being able to see everything that's happening and filling in the details in the worst possible way specific to your particular psyche and your particular concern. Yep. Yeah. Which is a thing that happens a lot in uh, prose, right? Like if you're reading a horror novel and they describe something, you know, and you're filling in the gaps. Uh, I think it's special in the way that it happens on this page. And they, uh, Paul Johnson just kills it. He nailed it. It was great. Amazing. But then it's again, and this is maybe this was one of these page breaks from the different chapters. It was all of a sudden, bang. Uh, she, this is one of these Joan of Arc scenes where she's basically armoring up to go confront what, you know, she says, if he's the devil, I'll know it. And this was another thing. I forgot to mention this earlier. All the eye motif stuff in this, you know, she talks about, does the devil have eyes? You know, Jonah Hex has got his big eye uh, hanging out of his head, you know, and they, uh, in her nightmares, the alien has either like glowing kind of venom symbiote eyes or uh, like huge orbs like underneath the dome, right? And so like she's- He's kind of like venom. The the xenomorph we see throughout the story has these white flares on either side of the the skull that appears to be eyes or flames Mm -hmm. or or energy or whatever. But you have the impression that they're eyes and it does recall venom specifically or or the symbiotes from the Spider-Man comic books. Yeah, yeah, it does. And she's, uh, well, not to belabor it, but it's the same thing as the other one where there's all that eye symbolism. And uh, it's not as, you know, like iconic as in the other one because none of this stuff is, but it's it's the same theme carried over, which is another thing like how, you know, could this have been put together independently? Maybe, probably, but it just, it does make you question it. But she wants to look into the eyes of the devil, right? Yeah, I actually think uh, this is, uh, I'm going to read this one verbatim. I will look into his face. I will see its eyes. If he is the devil, I'll know it. And this is also referencing as though the xenomorph that killed his mom, her mom is the same person that she's facing off. It's like, this is the same creature. And she's wondering if literally is like, is this the devil? Is the devil continuing to revisit me in my life wherever I go? Uh, Mm. And if there is a devil, then there must be a God. My soul has become like the settlement, damp with fear and guilt, dark and empty. I want so much to believe, to believe again. What made me stop believing? Nothing made me stop. Nothing. An overriding, all pervasive feeling of nothing. Soon we'll see if there is something in the eyes of the devil and this particular page resonates with me because I did go my personally I went through a period of religiosity I I, I um, had read a book of all things is embarrassing but I'd read a book of Kabbalah and I, I there's something about that that just really spoke to me it really resonated with me I didn't want to be Madonna and go like start practicing Jewish mysticism or anything but something mm-hmm. about the the Kabbalah text just resonated with me I was reading it on a drive with my father and it just hit me like a bolt from the blue some of the things that were being said there and one of the things that's repeated in Kabbalah over and over again is that you have to understand Torah. You have to understand the Tanakh. You have to read the scripture to understand the mystical things that we're talking about here in this book of Kabbalah. So I went back and read the, the, the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament in Christian terms. It's rearranged. Some of the wording's different. You know, certainly contexts are very different. But essentially, to translate it, it's the Old Testament. And I read the entire thing. And I, I what I would do, I, I was still at my comic shop at that time. And I would read 
a portion of the Tanakh and I'd get weary and I would lay down on the floor of the comic shop. This is obviously after hours. And I'd take a nap, sometimes 10 minutes, sometimes an hour, whatever. And it was like the stuff would be processing in my subconscious while I was asleep. And I would wake up and I would either pursue it more or I'd stop for that night. But I did this over a span of months while I'm working, making my way through this book and relating to you know, like like processing everything. And so, you know, having read this knock is like, okay, well, the next thing I need to do is I need to actually immerse myself in the community and go talk to people who follow this faith for their entire lives. And so I started going to temple. I started going to lay service. I would go to the eating services sometimes, but that didn't really, I didn't feel as much there. It didn't, it didn't feel as informative. I didn't get as much perspective. I, I just, I've never been very into ceremony. So the, 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 the Sabbath services, I kind of let go. The evening services, I let go. Um, I would go to the, the Saturday morning service where you'd have a lot of interaction. Uh, the learner's minion, uh, you, you were more participatory because you can like be, you t- you would go up to the dais and you would actually sing portions of songs and, and, and then you would go and do, you know, scriptural interpretation. And this guy's got the Fox and this, this one's got the Jewish Publication Society and they're going back and forth over what's correct and what's not. And also <laughs> I'd taken a, 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 you know, a course with the, the temple where you had rabbis explaining Judaism in general and, and like, you know, really immersing myself in it. And I did this for uh, several years. And then what had mm. happened is, and I got really religious and a little bit holy roller, a little bit self-righteous too, and <laughs> a little bit more superstitious, I guess I would say now in retrospect. And I just got, uh, from to, from my perspective as a person who values rationality, I just got way too into it um, because it had spoke to me, because I felt like it was touching a part of me that had, I'd, I had never had engaged before because I had never, when I went to those Baptist, you know, Sunday schools and, and, and church services, I never felt God there. Where right. when I was reading Kabbalah, when I was reading the Tanakh, when I was going to these services, I felt God there. And so that was the, the one time in my life where I was religious. And then what happened is I've done this for several years and, you know, I closed the shop and I went into other professions and I did other things. And I I, I started to like, it just sort of like went away. It's, it's like you have this epiphany that makes you go and do a thing like that. And then you have to try to sustain that energy over a span of years of time and you're 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 learning more about it and you're you're seeing the flaws in the logic and you're seeing the the, the stuff that doesn't really connect and also maybe self-reflecting and not liking the changes you're seeing in yourself you're supposed to be like oh I'm, I'm a much better person i've found religion blah 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 and it's like well am i though you know am i happy am i fulfilling myself am i maintaining this connection to god and ultimately i i could ultimately i i, I reached a plateau and then a decline where i got further and further away from God rather than, you know, I, I, it, rather than continuing to maintain or elevate that connection. And I think that's the thing that probably happens with a lot of people is you have that ecstasy from connecting to something greater to yourself or believing that you're doing that thing. But it, it, it's like chasing a dragon. It's like heroin. You, the the <laughs> high is going to eventually dissipate and then you're left with what's left. And like in the case of like say romantic love, you'll have infatuation and, and everything's going to be crazy and hectic. But the real relationship is what happens after the thrill is gone or after the, you know, is there still a fire there? Do you still care for this person? Do you still want to spend time with this person? Uh, can you maintain this relationship for years rather than, you know, exciting few months and stuff? Well, my religiosity lasted for a few years and it's never completely left me the, to the degree that I'm spiritual, to the degree that I believe in God and believe in higher powers and, and social order and stuff is Jewish influence. And one of the reasons why I gravitated toward it in the first place is a Jewish mindset and a Jewish moral sense had always been a part of me. In part, I think, from things like comic books because Judaism is so seeped into the morals of comics and comics creators and most of the great comic creators of the 
20th century were Jewish and were mm-hmm. informed by those morals and placing that into the text. And, but also Jewish comedy and just Jewish thought, it always resonated with me, I, I, but I'd never felt like I had a place there. And actually, that's part of the problem too, is I figure the Jewish people have been afflicted enough to have to deal with me besides. Um, so <laughs> I didn't want to drag them down by association either. But, but also, I just couldn't maintain the religiosity because too much logic seeped in and too much of, well, this was actually, oh, Deuteronomy, there was a king who wanted to get some stuff done. So they just magically found an extra book that wasn't there before to clarify a bunch of stuff that one king wanted to clarify. After you, you, you know, you start pulling the threads. And if you're a logical, rational person, it gets harder to hold on to the, the myth when you know that there was a reality there that's, you know, probably had more to do with controlling an unruly people in a desert environment, things like that. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So when she's when she's talking here, you know, in a, in a normal comic book story, an average comic book story, what would happen is somebody dear to her would be killed, like what happened to Jonah Hex, and that would be the cause of her loss of faith. And now she's going to confront this thing and she's going to regain her faith. But no, this is a person who always had these elevated ideas of how life should be and expectations, so much so that she becomes a priest, you know, no, no, no small task there. But even having become a priest and, and, and becoming a missionary and, you know, the, the ship that she's on is going on a mission, but then it, you know, something happens, she crashes, she's confronted with this incredible moral dilemma and, and also just a, a, a physical ordeal. It's like, can I survive this? Can I save these people, you know, on the corporeal plane, much less the spiritual plane as they're already fairly extinguished, but also she was going on the mission because she just didn't feel it anymore. You know, she, it, it, it was there for at one time perhaps, but it's gone now. And it's almost like she's going through the motions. Like I have to do this to reclaim the person I used to be, to reclaim the faith that I used to have. But is that an ethereal thing? Is that a, a spiritual thing or is it a psychological thing? Is it, is it, she's driven by the need to, to have that hole in her life filled or, or to have a sense of purpose? Is it a higher purpose or is it just, she needs something to engage her because she's the kind of person who needs something to fill that hole because she's never seemingly satisfied. So you've got those parallel tracks going in this story where, yeah, she's sort of the moral voice of the story, but also even she, like the corporation of people in the settlement, is is it about her, what she needs as a human being versus what they need as a community? Exactly. I think that that's exactly right. And I think uh, there's a there's a part I can't find, I've been flipping through trying to find it, but there's a part where she talks about her mother was always saying that she wanted too much and that when she became a priest, she uh, became a priest with something like with a zeal that scared the other clergy or disturbed the priest or something like that. And I think that that is a common religious experience. And it's almost like the, the tragedy of a religious experience is because it comes on, not always, it can come on so hot, right? And you've got the fervor and it is like a, you know, like a romantic love. You've got the the interest and you've got the drive. And then the tragedy of it is that the it wanes. It doesn't burn out where, you know, one day it's ta-da, you have it. The next day you don't. It just, it slowly drains away. And she talks about in the beginning, there, I don't know where it is. She's got a line, something to the effect of uh, what would it be like to live in fear of this alien every single day? Is there maybe even, a, like I think she says, is there a comfort in that? You know, and she's already, she she's well on her way with, you know, the, it's almost drained out of her and she knows it and she's in despair and she doesn't know what to do about it. And she sees this as like, you know, like you said, like, this is my chance. And it's almost like a, an action movie sequence where she's, you know, she's armoring up, you know, it's like, you almost see it as like a montage where she's like chest plate, you know, here's my, I'm going to wear my the cross I wear as a priest. I'm going to put on these boots. I'm going to sharpen my spear and uh, go to confront the devil. And you even in that panel, 
with her looking skyward at the gleaming spear, you know, like she's looking up to heavens to God for guidance and support. But what's interesting mm-hmm. to me too is you see her, you know, you you see the cross in the background, like the the, cro- the Christ from the crucifix. You see like the feet, right? Um, in in one panel, but you don't see a context for that. And then yeah. in the panel where she's holding the cross, it's not clear is she picking up the cross or is she setting down the cross because you don't see it on her in the final panel. So again, are we seeing what we think we're seeing? Uh, to some degree, it's like, oh, you know? Yeah. I bet now it does look like she's setting it down now. Mm-hmm. Awesome. This is pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what happens from there though? Uh, she's, you know, she's there. You have like her little uh, action suit up montage and then John tries to talk her out of it. And, you know, she's, he says, can, is there anything I can do to stop you? And she says, sure, you can take my place. And he's like, well, no. You know, <laughs> right, specifically, you know, do you have the courage to take my place, John? And right. gee, John, is that a name with any kind of uh, religious uh, connotations to it? Mm. <laughs> well, it, uh, this is going to tie into my interpretation of the end, but it actually means God has been gracious, which is interesting in the context of Anne means grace. And so I think that that really is, I mean, kind of foreshadowing, you know, the, you know, if Anne is the, the favor of God and John is an acknowledgement of that, I think that that kind of, you know, ties up what happens at the end in a emotionally resonant way. But uh, the plot wise, the thing that happens after he says, I can't take your place, I'm not, you know, he's like, he's not excited about it and he's not glowing. He's hangs his head and there's actually a silent panel. He's no, I can't take your place. But uh, how about this grenade? You know, they, it has to be a situation where he keeps it on himself. Maybe they don't have a lot of weapons in this facility. If they're waiting for the Clone Marines and their armament, they probably don't have a lot that they haven't used up already, but he's got this grenade and he hands it to her and she walks out silently. And there's a whole page of without dialogue of her walking past other, you know, other people in the camp. Other cowards. And yeah. They're just all, I mean, none of them are facing her. None of them are acknowledging her. They're all looking down. You know, one guy's holding his face in his hands. And as she exits the compound, John starts, there's a panel of John getting out his bottle. There's a panel of Jonah Hex sneering awfully. And then there's a panel of, you know, men watching her recede to the horizon where the jungle is. And that's another, you know, I mean, you could, you could have that sequence in a film, but I don't think it would resonate like it does here. You know, the way you can kind of just go back and forth on the page and the, the completely, you know, no dialogue. I think it's really, it's really something good, but it, you know, then the dialogue says it took her a half hour to, to find this. Stuff. It's not funny, but you know, she says it took me a half an hour to find this stone wrong. It took me 20 years and it's, you know, it's all right there on the page. She's waiting. She's actually perched on top of it, waiting for the xenomorph to show itself. And it does. And as you know, it's a great, you know, more great horror comics. It's the, it would be a zoom in if it was a horror movie, but it, you know, alien xenomorph's face is sticking out of the shrubs, the jungle, and uh, it's, you know, all the drool and you can, you can hear it. You know, I mean, like I said, when you've seen the movies, you can hear the, the slime dripping and the hissing and she's out there by herself with this. She's got a spear and she's going to confront the alien. And it is uh, smarter than her because <laughs> it uh, sneaks its tail around, takes her feet out from under her, you know, disarms her. And then they, all of a sudden the alien, I think probably in a bid to take some high ground, the alien hops on top of the, the, the uh, wine stained stone. And uh, the two panels before that too, I think are interesting because she's doing the whole thing where I've got the spear, I'm ready for the attack. Okay. Okay. Come on. Come on then. And this is the part where the heroes supposed to be girding themselves for action. But then you get that second panel in particular where you can see in her face, especially in her eyes, she 
she's like, what am I doing? I am a fool. Why am I doing this? I am scared. I am disgusted. I am disappointed in myself for putting myself in this position. What was I thinking? How can I, you know, just like she's clearly lost her nerve completely. And that's why part of the reason why she's taken over so easily. Um, they let you know she's not Joan of Arc. She's not here by divine power. It's just like she deluded herself into a bad situation and she's just realized it's time to wet myself. Right. Yeah. She's not the the action hero that was presented in the armoring up montage before. And I actually, this, this whole story, but this sequence in particular, uh, it reminded me of when I was a teenager before I didn't have a car until pretty late in the game. And so I was walking back from a friend's house and this is in the nineties and it was like three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning or something ridiculous. And we had been up playing risk uh, and I was walking home and I don't remember what had happened, but I was a teenager and I was being uh, morose. It was a sad teenager walking home uh, across town. It's a couple of miles at, you know, three or four in the morning. And I crossed a train bridge, which isn't, you know, the greatest thing to do to cross the river and cross a train bridge. And I crossed uh, a street that had a couple bars on it to get, you know, across town into my neighborhood. And it, it wasn't too long after that, like when I moved away from the commercial zone into the residential zone, I could hear that there were some people, some blocks behind me, you know, not a big deal. But as I, I was just walking a straight line home, uh, I realized they were getting closer and closer and they were getting louder and louder. And when they were like two blocks behind me, I realized that they were chasing me. And the thing that happens, uh, you know, the the morose, uh, you know, sulking teenager feelings you have when you're walking home across the train bridge at three or four in the morning disappear really fast when you are being chased down by, I mean, I presume they were drunks from the, the bar district and uh, all that stuff just vanished. And I remember, I mean, I, I don't, to the point where I don't remember what I was so upset about, but I remember thinking, oh man, these guys are going to kill me or I'm going to, I'm going to be in trouble. And the, it, it made me, you know, this sequence reminded me of it because she's like, you know, I've got these problems. I, you know, it, you know, she's got these spiritual problems. She's got these interpersonal problems. She's got this trauma. But then when you're faced with the alien, it's like, oh, oops, you know, it, it that the physical danger, like, and being threatened, not even hurt, just threatened, wiped all that out for me. And uh, I mean, long story short, I cut around the back of my neighbor's house, jumped the fence, ran the long way around, and they, I lost them. So they, they, there wasn't an altercation, but just the the threat alone, right? And then that's what those feelings kind of just bubbled up for me when I was reading at first when she says, "Was it what's it like to live in fear?" And, you know, I thought about how that, you know, like the fear can erase these things, all these existential problems, pretty fast. And then I think about it again here, where she in that panel where you can tell she's not the action hero, and then she's, you know, she's not surrendering, but she realizes she's in over her head, and all that stuff, all that baggage of right and wrong is not. I don't feel like it's as present with her as am I going to live? You know what I mean? Like that's her her new problem, isn't? Are those fifty babies in the ten gallon aquarium? Is that good or evil? Her her problem now is oh this thing's going to kill me. Yeah, and another thing that it reminds me of is Prey, the Predator TV movie that came out last year, right? Oh yeah, yeah. And, and there's a movie where in the first act you've got the girl sitting trying to hunt the alien creature with a spear, gets in over her head, loses her footing, lands on the ground, and then what does she do? Of course, the, over the course of the movie, is she dusts herself off, she learns from her mistakes, and she goes back and confronts the creature all over again. It's the first act where she has a defeat that girds her to go back into combat and and this time she's going to succeed. Mm -hmm. And what it reminds me of too is that Predator, and it's probably one of the reasons why I don't re respond to Predator in the same way I respond
on Alien is Predator is a knockoff of Aliens and Aliens is almost the American answer to Alien because I think Alien while Dan O'Bannon was one of the writers on it it's a very English movie it's filmed in England you've got an English director you've got a variety of English actors even the ones that are pretending to be Americans are often English Um, Mm -hmm. and it has a very English sensibility you do have somebody who survives in the end but it's a fairly theoretic victory and everybody else has died and you've been through all this horrible stuff and you're not going to be home as a welcoming welcome hero as we see in the first act of the sequel is like oh no we're basically holding you responsible for all this stuff that happened that wasn't your fault but we're pointing the finger at you because we think you're a nutcase coming up with stories about aliens and stuff right (laughs) but of course that's just the opening arc where she's going to you know acquit herself she's going to show no 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 I am the heroine I am I I am not this you know I'm not the problem I'm the solution right Um, a very American and of course you've got you've got the colonial marines and you've got all the action and all the adventure and the great music and all that kind of stuff right and then you get the third movie and they they don't even go English with it they pretty much go German with it it's like no (laughs) we're going to go as bleak as we possibly can way too bleak to be commercially successful this is going to be art and you're you're you know I don't care if you love it or not I'm not here to make friends you know I'm here to win the game right so this story starts it ends where Prey begins this story she's not going to dust herself off and come back from this right You and you know by this point in the story that that's the case Um, you've got an English writer you've got an English artist they're doing it for the English version of Aliens and ultimately this is going to be a fairly English story because you're setting up all this religious significance and uh, you know the the mortal way versus the 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 spiritual path and all this stuff but it isn't going to you're, you're not going to hear you know Eye of the Tiger at the end of this Rocky isn't going to be you know with his hands up you know uh, show indicating victory at the end of the story you know that by this point this is it's all it feels to me that like some degree that this is an English story reclaiming this property for England and English sensibilities and we we're not going to have a happy ending here this is a story about creatures that eat and molest human beings and uh that's what they do that's all they do they're they're the sharks they're they're, if you bleed they're going to bite you it's got nothing to do with god the devil your your personal need for a a connection or your your resolution of your your feelings about the sacrifice your mother made for you to live this life it's not about that it's a creature it's going to kill you or it ain't you know and that's 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 all it is it's like it's a circumstance and how you're going to deal with the circumstance once it's fully played out so uh yeah so that being said we can start talking about the actual ending of the story well i think uh what you said is reflected in when after the alien takes her down the next page is her talking to herself she says open your eyes mother help me open my eyes and she doesn't right and the aliens hissing and the uh the, you know the teeth and the slime and everything and she doesn't open her eyes until the uh i will keep wanting to say the villagers or the refugees but the guys from the camp show up and throw a net around the alien and it gets uh it, you know it seems like maybe this is going to end up all right uh, does not end up all right because the net is not going to hold his morph back and jonah hex bites it and, uh, uh, and again there's a guy me. who's saying the whole time we just need to keep doing what we're doing until the colonial marines show up you know we're not here to be heroes i've already lost enough i'm not going to lose anything more and then when he finally does an about face and confronts the alien he dies like a punk in a couple of three panels you know in the midst of a action sequence in which he really isn't very significant right i mean he i think it does say something about not just him but the everybody you know that they showed up you know like it is and there's a couple lines about there's 
he's something to the effect of we uh, man men couldn't a man can't take down a mammoth alone but they had you know together human ingenuity solves everything oh i'm on the wrong page yeah but yeah he says basically that and this isn't well, this is another one of those like this is, this makes sense for the timeline as it's presented but ultimately i don't care because it's so awesome uh he was talking about we're strong enough to pull down mammoths and we work together when we don't have any chance on our own and they lure the xenomorph into a tiger pit where it's one of these deals where they dug a hole in the ground and filled it full of spikes and the alien falls into it impaled on multiple points and they start cheering hooray of course if you know about the aliens uh, impaling them and getting their blood everywhere is not a hooray that's a oops <laughs> he again reaches up with the uh, with the tail grabs Anne around the ankle and pulls her into the uh, acid spikes tiger pit and she talks about how she can tell this thing isn't dead it's working its way off the spikes the guys are throwing down advice to her you know you have a chance get out of there and she says no I have to look into his eyes to see if they're the eyes of the devil and she has uh, John's grenade she gets up close to the thing it has the like the luminescent sparkling venom eyes that it up until this point I think it only had them in her dreams or visions and if you know it's hissing in the mouth and all this stuff and then the next page again uh, money shot beautiful and uh, really a great use of a splash page the grenade goes off in the alien's mouth the tiger pit is lit up the alien's head is exploding massive blood is flying everywhere you know this is a you know another fantastic uh aliens comic book panel really well done not like you know rendered like a photograph you know not rendered as uh precise as the other panels yeah but appropriately a little bit more abstract a little bit more splotchy it's it's really great it's not a pinup you would not turn this into a poster it will not get hung on your wall it's really not that detailed like he said it's it's almost monochromatic it's just shades of orange and yellow and and mm-hmm. white spaces um but because they're all there's so much earthy color throughout this story and then you have this one page of this unnatural bright comic book orange to let you know that oh, we're, we're at the the eye of the storm we're at the heart of the explosion and it's not there because he wants to flip that page on ebay it's there because it's going to have an uh, optimal impact within the context of the story in which it's being presented uh yeah you, you know that's it's 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 about telling the story and getting to the emotions and getting to uh, uh, getting a response out of the reader uh not about you know look at how cool my line work is you know right yeah and it's uh this is a thing i only pick up on a reread but the only place colors are presented like this anywhere are in the very first panel where she's flashing back to the ship crash and then the two panels on page i think it's page three where she's reminiscing again about the the ship you know that she crashed in being on fire and everything else is you know like i said so dark and murky uh and even now it's almost the rest of the book is darker but clearer in a lot of spaces and this is bright and and somehow more abstract but appropriate you know it kind of you know i don't want to say it feels like you're staring into a explosion but it's a it's a great and effective uh comic page of that approximates staring into an explosion and then yeah and then the next page is the bummer this is where the they talk about the she had a believing with the ferocity that scared the older priests but that's where the there's a page of you know buttoning up the the flashback sequence with her you know she says she saw her mother run toward the alien saw and fully realized for the first time an unconditional absolute certain is in bold text next to unconditional and absolute love for her for Anne, and she's you know processes that and i think that that you know there's obviously going to be comparisons between what Anne's mom did for her and what Anne is done for 
for the, the village. But uh, I think there's a little bit more to it than that. I mean, I guess we should revert at the very, very end. I should just say she survives, but she is uh, she's blinded by that grenade explosion. And so she's back to where she started. You know, the, the first issue or the first page of the story is John is taking care of her after she you know, recovers from that crash. And now uh, John is taking care of her again as she you know, regains consciousness after sticking the grenade in the alien's head. And see, the last two pages of the story, it's a nine panel grid, which I think most comic artists loathe. You do a nine panel grid when you've got a talkie talkie scene and you're drawing basic stuff, boring stuff, headshot, headshot, middle shot. You know, you you avoid it because of the lack of dynamism. You know, you, mm-hmm. you can't do anything cool in a nine panel grid. Everything's blocked off. Everything's symmetrical. Um, you know, it's the it's the most utilitarian use of a comic book page possible. And on top of this, it's almost all solid black panels filled with text. It's like anti-comics. You know, you've got all, all this whole story's been rendered in, in glorious realism, painted artwork. This is back in the time period, or one of the various time cycles where painted art was the hotness, where, oh, you know, the height of comic books is painted artwork. And of course, the argument is that so much painted artwork is so static. It looks so stiff. It, it you know, it look everything looks like a still life, which is in a direct conflict with what most people want from comics, which again is the dynamism, that motion, that 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 sense of, you know, forced perspective and things are coming at you all the time and you just can't do that with painted artwork. There are people who can buck that trend, but typically you just look like a bunch of pictures thrown together instead of it being a story with life and movement and and like it's it, it, instead of evoking cinema, it evokes stills from a, a picture, right? Right. And so yeah. black panels, all dialogue. I'll read the last few uh, captions. I, I imagine he she's talking to drunken guy who wants to bang her. Uh, I imagine him above me. His eyes will be red. He'll be full of pity for me. I can live with that. Blind, of course. I stared into the sun and it burnt out my eyes. I stared into the sun. I stared into the creature's eyes. And what did I see? Nothing. It has no eye. Neither of us, ha- neither of us have them now. I saw nothing. No devil. No ultimate evil. No ultimate anything. Just bland, indifferent destruction. No more demonic than an earthquake or a plague. There is no devil. There is no God. Mother was right. I wanted too much. I wanted gods and devils. I wanted heaven and hell. I wanted certainties. I must learn to settle for much less. Masters take, takes my hand. The, the fellow's name is Masters. I'm yep. sure there's a, a, a relationship to a deity in that name as well. But uh, mm. I, can, I can tell by the way he holds my hand that my blindness will not change things. We will stay together. I think Masters will be a good man. It isn't fair of him. Oh, sorry. It isn't fair on him, of course. He's taking the place of God. It's a hard act to follow. There will be times when I'll resent him. I may get to love him. In the blackness, I am in a different world. There are others here with me, but no God and no devil. Uh, yeah, how's, awesome. how's that for a button? It's super great. I mean, I think the only thing I could add to it is how she, when she says, you know, I looked into the eyes of the alien and what did I see? Nothing. It has no eyes. I saw nothing. It uh, calls back to when she said nothing is what made me stop believing you know nothing made me stop and overriding all pervasive nothing and it was the you know it's the same thing you know she looks into the eyes of that thing and it was nothing it's really great
great. And again, <laughs> she's she's this person who expects so much, wants so much, reaches farther, higher than other people. Can't just be a priest; has to be the super priest. And now she's settling. She's not even in love with this guy. He's obviously if she's if he stays with her at all, it's out of pity or it's because uh, he's going to get what he's wanted from her the entire time, and th- that he doesn't need more than that. Uh, also, you know, these guys are probably still stranded. There's still no colonial marines showing up. Might as well stick it out going forward. You know, maybe he feels guilt because uh, again, is it a rousing moment when the, everybody gets together and they get out their nets and they, they manage to knock the alien into the punji sticks and all that kind of good stuff? Sure, you can see it that way, but alternately, they were guilted out of it in the first into doing this in the first place. But also, they're probably themselves pretty sick of their situation, and it might be a, you know, oh, we have a new CEO, we have a new directive. It's let we if we all get together, we can go ahead and face this thing. We've already lost a bunch of people. We don't know if we can keep this thing uh, satiated indefinitely. Hmm. Let's just, while we've got it, you know, while we're pumped up and while we're ready to do this, let's just go out and try to do this now and see if we can make this work. So once again, do we finally have a community that's working together out of love for one another? Or is it a corporation? Are they all working toward their self-interest realizing that it's probably going to be better at this point for them to just address the alien directly rather than trying to skirt the issue because it's just getting worse and worse and, and with no end in sight. So is it still, we're being motivated by our self-interest. We're going to collectively do the thing that we want to have done so we can stop dealing with this problem and we can move on, you know? Um, right. Is it arousing success? You know, no. And, and in fact, they almost failed because again, the alien falls in, doesn't manage to hit any vital organs. These are really tough creatures. There's a real probability it's going to climb back out of the pit. Also, she could have just thrown the grenade in there. That would have probably done the job, right? But no, it wasn't going to be enough. She had to get right in there, right in its face, one more time, expecting way too much and ultimately getting nothing but grief for, for her commitment to an idea that doesn't pan out. I'm all upset about, oh God, is this some pro-choice comics? Like, <laughs> no, it couldn't be less of that. It almost, at the end, is like, it's all meaningless. You know, I, I blinded myself because I wanted too much. I'm Icarus, too close to the sun. Now my wings have melted off and I'm falling until, you know, the, the ultimate end. But I'm going to yep. just settle for my circumstance now. I'm going to settle for the guy that just wanted to, you know, shack up with me. It's all, I, you know, I, I, I survived. There, there was no greater purpose for my survival. Another creature, just like the one that got my mother, got me essentially. I'm not dead yet. I will be eventually. This is all there is. This is all there is. Right. You know? And it's and it's it's pretty uh so that was my when I got to the end of it, I was like, that's it. You know, it's like she's uh lost her faith, she's lost her sight, and she's just gonna have to live the this life in this, you know, walking dead survival camp without any zombies. You know, there's nothing to even if you were getting that charge or that uh maybe even just like anchoring yourself in the present through the fear of the alien that would be that's something right more than nothing you know just because even when like living with that fear but i think uh trying to figure out how i should present this idea so there's a couple spots in the comic that where you're like you just gotta go okay sure like the tiger pit like those guys did they have the time to you know dig a tiger pit or maybe it was there already they just didn't want to use it you know that's just one of these okay sure things and i don't think there's an in-story reason uh the other the big one for me is when they're flashing back to her to the ship being crashed right after she says she went to pray but physically couldn't bring herself to do it the ship crashes and then she's stumbling from the wreckage and it is a ball of flame like that we don't see anything like that again until the alien has the grenade in his head and the we find out where it says there must have been an explosion i don't remember that i just remember waking screaming in hell the flames i was already running the noise was louder i must 
must have been thrown clear, jumped, or was jettisoned before the explosion. So the idea is something was wrong with this ship. Turns out not to have been aliens. It crashes. The whole thing burns to the ground, and she's the only survivor. And so that's the kind of thing where I wouldn't think this, obviously, without the context of the story, but it almost seems like there's a divine hand in her survival. You know, there's not an in-story reason for why this ship is melting slag. Everyone else is dead and she's walking around, you know? And I don't think, I'm not reading that as a story problem or a plot hole or anything like that. I'm thinking in the context of this story about religion is the ultimate, you know, hidden twist is that, you know, God existing as a character in this comic story or not, she survived that crash and walked away from it somehow. And she ends up, she either ends up blind and defeated and having to spend the rest of her life with this guy who may or may not even care about her. Or, you know, if Anne means grace, maybe that is, you know, her sacrifice is the way that the the villagers, it's like her holding the door open for their redemption, you know, because grace either means, you know, like, you know, if I'm holding the door for the old lady at the grocery store, it's like a grace could mean a courtesy, but it also can mean like, um, not like you're chosen, but just like the favor of God. That's, you know, if you have like the grace of God, go forward in the grace of God. And it could be that she is the the doorway to grace for these villagers guys. You know, that her, for her, the alien, I think was about her, you know, is obviously her trauma, but it's also facing a godless existence, right? Like the alien was like an existential thing that she faced and, you know, she's blind, but she's alive. And that's a lot better than a lot of people who face xenomorphs. And I think that maybe her being there could, you know, it's still like you're saying, it's still the corporation. It's still the, the those those people and they're all maybe not doing what they want to be doing. But I think that her being there can turn that around for them and they can go forward and not drink themselves to sleep every night like they were when they're growing babies in aquariums to feed to the thing in the in the jungle. I don't know. And again, this is like because they're always pitting the aliens versus the predators. There's the assumption that, oh, you, you like one you're unlike the other. You know, they're the same thing, right? And, mm. you know, I, just to me, it's like, no, they're not because the alien concept it, it allows for this kind of depth and this breadth of, of usage and interpretation and everything else. And I, I really feel like Predator is the American version where it's just, it's a boogeyman and you fight the boogeyman and you win and hurrah, you save the day. You just, <laughs> right. the concept isn't, doesn't allow for this sort of thing because ultimately it's very straightforward. It's a hunter. It shows up, it hunts humans. You either live or you die. Ultimately, mm-hmm. somebody's going to have to drive it off or kill it. You win, you you get to survive and you've validated your existence because you're the guy who saved everybody else because you stopped the hunter, right? Um, you, there's only so much you can do with that with aliens look at this look at this This how deep this gets you know this we've had two episodes long involved theological and and, and, and philosophical discussions based on aliens stories you know you, yeah. you just you, this property supports that you know? that's why I, I, I have such affection for it yeah I, mean, I think it's I mean until they get if they I don't know if they're going to make any more of those sequels but even with those sequels the aliens are in a way they're, uh, they're just there for you to project your anxieties and your neurosis and your fears onto, right? They don't, 
don't have agenda or culture or motivations. You know, like, you know, the predators are a whole race of hunters. That's a, you know, it's pretty straightforward and you can still do stuff with those stories, but it's not this huge blank slate, you know, like aliens. I think that it's very, uh, it's a very special situation. Yeah. I think part of the problem with predators is that you, you, they, they have, they're vulnerable to garlic. They're vulnerable to silver bullets. Uh, you know, don't, they can't go under running water. Like you, you know, the boundaries, you know, the limitations, you know how to kill the vampire. So it's not as scary anymore because it's not an unknown where with the aliens, what you know is horrifying and you never are going to know everything because they don't have a society. They have a structure of sorts, but you don't understand that structure. You never can. They can never articulate that for you. They don't dress in certain ways. You know, they don't have necessarily clearly defined roles beyond what we can determine, deduce from their insect-like qualities, but then they can surprise us because we think that they can't do something that they can or they will do something that they won't. Uh, they just, they, they, as you said, it's it's more of a blank canvas. There's you, You'll never be able to fully contain them and therefore there will always be that, that ability to horrify or intrigue you in ways that the more straightforward things can't elicit. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think it's, uh, it just allows for so many different things to be horrible, I guess. <laughs> you know, you can put the, the subtext you can bring to it and the and maybe that's part of it you know maybe that it's more of a audience participation thing like you've got to bring your baggage to the aliens so they can throw it back at you or maybe it's just a, a difference like a because i mean predator is a this last installment notwithstanding it's a lot more macho maybe masculine kind of concept right like the hunter the hunter's going out and doing the hunting you know and then in aliens it's all this stuff about reproduction and consent and and what all these- needs to be a mother and protecting your lung, young and, and yeah. defending your species and like well, again even with Prey really it's just a girl doing what the boy would have done so it's still a masculine story regardless of the girl power because she's still fulfilling a masculine ideal of actualization yeah yeah I mean it was cool but it was you're you're right it is that and I, I just I don't know I think there's more there's more room to more room and more directions with, uh, with aliens than Predator if that makes sense yeah and then just to briefly talk about the creators too a lot of times with this books it'll feature people that i i didn't really encounter that often or i'm like aware of their existences but i only had little trickles of 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 contact with them and what's interesting with paul johnson is it for some reason this was a guy I just can, kept stumbling over in the 90s you know he did one of the books of magic uh, but he wasn't sexy like john bolton you know it's like he he did just the more realistic grounded stuff he did the mercy um a prestige format story with jm dimatteis uh, he did um, a, a number of things for Vertigo. Uh, he did some of the portraits for Marvel Portraits of a Universe. So again, he's going up against Alex Ross and Simon Bisley. Uh, he did some of the Hellraiser stuff that I read back in the day. Uh, he, I remember seeing Interface, the James Hudnall uh, book from Epic. And uh, you know his covers kind of put me off of that. He did a story arc with James Robinson and Legends of the Dark Knight that I remember went from my retail days. I, I bought the first issue of Children of the Voyager, the Marvel Frontier comic, uh, which was Marvel UK's attempt to do their own Vertigo and so they've got this grisly painted cover by him that happened to glow in the dark because 90s uh, and I Yay. remember looking at that uh, he you know I, I I just kept tripping over this guy he did trading cards I think he did covers and it just I never liked his stuff because it wasn't sexy it wasn't cool he drew fairly realistic looking people and I wanted the the cool kids you know especially in the 90s yeah and I and I still want that to some degree but then I look at a story like this and he does such incredible work he, he draws he paints people so realistically they're they're just absolutely come to life and he does 
so much in service to the story when he could have been doing pinup shots that I just have enormous respect for the work he did. But even here, it's like, but he's not Mike Mignola inked by Kevin Nolan. You know, it's like, I, right. I, I still want that, but it's almost like the, the you know, the d- different portions of the psyche. These two stories are so similar and so different because they're triggering different aspects, different needs within me. But I think this is a fantastic story. So well realized. I do think it's probably the best Peter Milligan story I've ever read. It's definitely among the best alien stories I ever read. And it's funny because like I loved Gross Point Blake. It's such a cool movie. I enjoy it so much. Um, But then, and I didn't like High uh, Fidelity the first time I saw it, but then I saw it several more times afterwards. And ultimately I have a much deeper connection to High Fidelity, uh, especially with that killer soundtrack. But they both have killer soundtracks. You know, they're similar, but they're different, right? This is very much feels like that too. It's like, I really feel like Salvation is my gross point blank and this is my High Fidelity. And I, I have deep affection for both of them. I think they're both exemplary. They're two of the best John Cusack movies ever made. These are two easily two of the best alien stories ever made. They absolutely make perfect sense being put together in a hardcover where when I first heard that, it's like, well, that's just convenient, right? They just slap these two things together because they came out around the same time. And they're right. Linked. No, these these deserve to go together. They fit together. They're both excellent stories. And again, there's another instance where it makes me remember why I, I started this podcast and why I'm continuing with this podcast because it's like, oh, th- this is this is great comics. This isn't just, a, oh, wow, I finally read an Aliens comic that was as cool as one of the movies. It's like, this is great work within the medium. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm really happy that I have a great big hardcover of this material because it deserves that. Uh, I'm, I'm really happy and, and it vindicates my purchase that having this omnibus means I finally read the story and have been re- enriched by it. And it, it's it's constructed in a completely different way from Salvation. And I was just saying, well, you can't peel back the onion as much on this. But again, as we're talking about it, this is another story where the more you pick at it, the more flecks of gold come off of it, you know? Yeah. It's not like oh, I'm tearing it apart. It's like, no, this is this is even better than I thought it was the first time. And I liked it the first time, you know? It's uh, it's an, an, another one of those references where the, the deep dive of a podcast makes you appreciate something more rather than less. So, uh, you know, this is excellent work and I just commend both of the people who are involved with it. And um, I'm more inclined to read more of their work going forward because of how good they did here. It's very, very, uh, for different reasons than Salvation, but it's highly rereadable. You know what I mean? It's one of these things where I think you almost have to read it at least twice because the whole, I mean, if people are listening to this, they're going to have heard about the babies already. But when I was flipping through this and I got to those babies, I it turned me so inside out. I, you know, I didn't even know what to, I couldn't almost process the rest of it. And then it, the rest of it hit you that much harder because you can't process it as you're going. It's really, uh, it's really something. The guy, uh, Paul Johnson, I guess he retired. I guess he turned into like an acupuncturist and sells vitamins or something like this. Yeah, we, we both reading Lambic, I take it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think it was a, on the uh, an interview on The Beat is what I was reading. But maybe it was that because I did Google him to see where else I would have seen him. And it was the main thing. The main thing I remember about him, the way he, there's a, I couldn't find my paperback and I didn't dig out the original issues. But in Books of Magic, book four, where it's, I think it's Constantine is at the end of the end of time. And he's like a the hanged man from the tarot or something like this. The way he painted him was so just barely not right. The only way I could explain it in comic book terms is sometimes uh, like Gil Kane faces would give me nightmares when I was a little kid because they're just they're just not just right. They're just a little bit weird and that you know just not weird enough to bother you. It was like that. Like he painted panels in books of magic. I can I don't know the story behind anymore, but I can still see in my head in you know what is that like 1991 or whatever. So he, you know, he's capable of making an impression. 
impression. And I think this book makes that same kind of impression. Well, and it's interesting too, because it's a painted book with very realistic faces and everything else. And yet I still saw um, the Gil Kane reference you made. I can see that in retrospect, since you mentioned it. I kept seeing Paul Galassi in the artwork. Yep. And it's like, but this is a yeah. painting, you know? And yet it's still there. Like, and it's there. really weird because it's, you know, especially Paul Galassi, I'm thinking, you know, the line, the line work, right? And this is, you know, hue and color work, but it's still, like I said, you know, a little bit of Gil Kane somehow, Paul Galassi, but I don't even know how to, how I would articulate that really. You know, it's just like a vibe, I guess, but it's great. Well, and some of the angles and, and some of the facial structure, particularly on, on the main character, uh, and, you know, I, I, I saw that. So, yeah, but it's, it's, how did you even do that? How does it even work? That doesn't make sense. You know, it's like, let's like Alex Ross painting over Eric Larson. What? What? Yeah. Yeah. It's got, it's that kind of, kind of thing, which is kind of, you know, I mean, it's not literally painting over Gil Kane, but it kind of gives you that, those little, you know, in Salvation, you know, you could sometimes see the Kevin Nolan on the Mike Vignola. You could be like, oh, it's coming through or, oh, that's, you know, a good balance. It's kind of like that where it gives you the impression like, oh, is that Paul Gulacy? Oh, is this, it's, uh, it's those up the nose. He, I think he does a couple up the nose uh, panel compositions. That must be where I was getting the Gil Kane vibe, but, but yeah, it's great. And I, I owe it all to this podcast. I would not even have picked up this one shot if I wasn't anticipating hearing about it on this podcast and trying to figure out what happens after Salvation. So weird. It's like something actually good came out of a podcast and it's not a situation where they make it sound good and you go read it and it's actually not that great after all. They just, you know, I've had people like, oh, I listen to your podcast and I went out and I bought the book. It's like, the book that we were ripping to shreds, that was a terrible book. Why did you buy that book? We were specifically warning you not to buy this book. Right. You know? <laughs> I was like, no, no, this one you guys need to read. Go ahead and might as well pick up the hardcover with Salvation and, and Sacrifice and, and make the combo deal of it. Again, yeah. it, it's so good. This was supposed to be an anthology podcast and I even set up the anthology aspect of it at the very beginning of the podcast and this is a three hour long podcast there's no way we're talking about anything else we, we had so much to talk about this is this is the this is the uh, no 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 it just completely overwhelmed the show we can't talk about anything else this is too good to let anything else drag it down and trust me when we get to crusade it, 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 yeah. it, it, that's that's the anchor that's the third part of the trilogy that ruins the entire franchise let me tell you but that's one for next time all right <laughs> Alien Sacrifice One-Shot was released on May 25th, 1993. It does not appear to have made it into the top 100 comics for that month. Capital City sales were 21,925 copies, actually outselling Salvation's 19,050 copies at the same $4.95 cover price. The U.S. import of Aliens Magazine number 9, the first chapter of Sacrifice, waited until June 22nd, 1993, a month after the collected edition, and didn't resolve until September 7th, 1993. Issue 13 also offered the first chapter of the magazine-exclusive Crusade serial. The Aliens, Salvation, and Sacrifice trade paperback ranked 21st in unit sales and 16th in dollars on Diamond's January 2001 graphic novel sales to comic shops. Retailing at $12.95, it sold 1,688 copies at the time. It was actually released on March 14th, 2001.
AJ Lowe, Andy Kuhn, Anti Wyatt Equation, Between the Pages Blog, Billy Hines, CH, Carlos Cruz, Chris Dunford, Chris Lydon, Chunky Apps, Comic Art Crimes, The Comic Crush, The Daily Taylor, Dave with Numbers, David Jacobs, Dear Watchers, A Marvel What If Podcast, Donald in Washington, MA Conversations, John Jennings, Dread Pirate Rum Swizzle, Dirk Ashton, and more, Eric Johnson Illustrator, Explorer National Parks, History of Comics on Film, Jeffrey Brown, They Them, Jay Hunt 2000, Jimmy Allen, J.A. Books, Joe J.K. 26, King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast, Lamar the Revenger, Mark Bromage, Mega Gears X, My Kids and Aliens to Me, Moose the Hobo with the High Kick Matson, MOS 6502, Otha Zachariah, Edward Lose, Print Workers Barcelona, Brianna Mike on Hive, sort of, Richard Field, Robin, Roy Bashore, Seth, Sean Gilmore, Spin Day, Superbound, Tomoscori, Toto 22, Ufta, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast, Zarabi, Zwick Jameson, Firehole Observes, Great Episode Guys, But You Both Are Liars, Emo Alien Topless Apis Fire, Billy Hines added, Alien Salvation, I'm going to say a masterpiece of horror and comics, Given the story is layered and creepy, Mignola's art is at one of its many peaks, few artists, Bachelo, Eminem, Wagner, have traveled so far through so many styles over the years, it can be hard when one's favorite style goes away, I feel Mignola, more than anyone, had to outrun imitators, I've noticed they seem to give up the chase eventually, most just borrowing his marks from the Conqueror Worm, Box of Evil, Almost Colossus period. Nolan's inks are subdued, and Hollingsworth's colors are perfect. It probably is the best alien comic. Billy also added it, it should have been me, Gif. Yeah, not this time either, Billy, but I still have your name in the hat. Mega Gears X rebutted, I'll be honest, this is the Mignola art that I enjoy. I know he's doing what works for him, but it just doesn't work for me. Not saying it's bad, just not my vibe. Hey, at the end of the day, it makes Mignola happy, and he's content with it. He's definitely an iconic style, distinguishing him from others. Can't please everyone. Odell Dracula concluded with, Hey everybody, guess who is the guest on the latest Star Wars Presents Aliens podcast? Spoiler, me. I am the guest. Hooray. I doodled an alien to celebrate. Definitely doodled compared to the artist reviewed in the podcast. We all do what we can. I've embedded the tweet on the Rolled Spine blog if you missed it there. Kanim stated, That's neato. Odell brought his own audience and included the art of Otha Zachariah Edward Lose, Charity Schmidt, Curtis Square, Dismarl Balorogian Butcher, Eric C. Jones, insert name here, Jane Tellum, Kashif Ali, Kate God, Magpie, Mr. 605, Mondo Peace Theater, The New Top G, Kaylin Miller, Noel Thingle, Rob Stenziger, Sarah Number 2665, Sukent Ant, TESD Groupie, and Villain. The Dark Horse Presents Aliens Salvation Tumblr was liked by Bill Zamano Untitled, Yakche Enjoyer Euphoria, Kala Ko, Helena Absent, Raw Honey, Alien Bug X, Alien Bug X, Rosewater Gale A, Moment in Scarlet, 00062510015 Rudsin Titulo, Dark Silver 878 D Silver, Bitterfruit Better Living, Welcome to Hell But with Nerds, Illustrative Writer Stalk River, Sour Patch Thief 16, I'm Tired of Living 13, I Like Bugs a Lot, Gay Lyman Truther, Vumfear Hicks Saint for Girl Boys, Copper Wave Rider Stuck Here Again, Dolori blog Giori Delori Raging Stinking Rotten Gay Hungle Digital Vortex Outpost Zero A Poor Man's Hero Untitled Vinny Venedito Vinny Deer Any Pronouns Lost Mouse Bees or Kjol and Odell Abner Dracula This has been the Rolls Spine Podcast
All audio samples are believed covered under fair use laws. No copyright infringement is intended. Coming in February. Dark Horse presents Aliens Omnibus 3. Singing is good for memory anyway. Well, and also, especially with like Yiddish and stuff, a lot of it's almost like scatting. And scatting in rhythm is like ya ba 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 ya ba 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 bim bum ya ba 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 ya ba 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 bim bum ay ya 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 ba 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 bim bum ay ya 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 ba 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 bim bum. So that's the sort of thing that you know it doesn't leave you. It's almost like an Oscar Mayer jingle type of thing, where like those particular sounds have no meaning. I'm not even sure if they if if there's anything that relates to. I think it's just a sound for the song and there are lyrics too as well, but that's a part you can recall easily. And it's all you're doing is, but you know, it's not a thing really, you know, but you just remember the rhythm and those particular sounds and that's all it is to you. (laughs) But that's one of the ones we would do like every week. So that one's still stuck in there, you know, hardwired. Yeah. That's going to stay. That's hard coded. (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty great <laughs> well I, I better be careful though if i keep this part in there i better not truncate or it's going to really screw up the rhythm of that, that particular tune what was that did you start thinking in tongues are you sure you're not yeah. happy still <laughs> <It's> a- <laughs> <laughs> you could have it It'd be like an easter egg like a little stinger oh, it's <laughs> right? in tongues.